the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Alan Clark today on for uh, Dave Ellswick. We'll see what kind of judgment he has because <laughs> this is uh, my first time to host a radio show, and I am as nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Uh, we have the power panel today uh, with us, Paul Calvert. Yes, sir. And Thanks, R.D. Hopper. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and also have a friend of mine. I hope I can call her a friend, Audie Allenball. Absolutely. I never can get her last name right, know how to spell it. The uh, And we'll have some other guests later. Uh, they uh, uh, A couple of the guests at least will be a little controversial. With Some, pe- some people love them, like me, and some people don't love them so much because they're passionate about what they do. And uh, I am uh, just love Audie. Uh, I think she's a great gift to the state. Uh, I spent uh, met her when I in 2017, 2016. Uh, for, from 2015 after the session to th- 2016, I spent months uh, going around asking people uh, what was the most important thing we could do in the legislature about education in the next session, and talking to superintendents, teachers, uh, and others. And uh, and third grade reading level came up at some point because everyone agrees on how important third grade reading level is. And I mean, everyone agrees on that. And and one of the questions I began to ask is if third grade reading level is so important, why do we not set everything aside in kindergarten through third grade if we need to and teach kids to read? Uh, and you could see the looks on people's faces. Well, we never thought of that. And I understand that. I'm a business manager. In R.D., you spend a lot of time putting out fires and not spending time on the on the big picture. Uh, you spend time on the day-to-day. And But as I was asking those questions, someone directed me to Audie. And I, I remember one time I told her about our second conversation, I don't know if you're crazy or if you're right, <laughs> uh, but this really sounds good. And I spent some time vetting. Because uh, always when you find an answer that seems too easy uh, but yet has not been accepted, uh, a lot of times it's not the answer. A lot of times it's there's there's some problem with it. But in visiting with them, I found out uh, that it was the answer. And I was uh, the more I talked to him, I found out that my friend, who is now Congressman Bruce Westerman, had run a bill in 2011. Uh, and the first time that we had a majority, we only had 51 in the House. Uh, had a Republican majority and could not get it out of committee uh, to deal with uh, teaching the science of reading uh, in our schools. And uh, so they said, that's what we need to do. And I said, well, if Bruce Westerman couldn't get it out of committee, good luck with Alan Clark doing anything with it. But uh, we got together uh, with Audie and her group, and she'll have to tell you the name of her group, and uh, got together and uh, worked on this bill and went to the Department of Education, and they were very supportive. Uh and uh, really got it through much easier than anyone would have expected in a bipartisan fashion. I should mention that uh, Senator Joyce Elliott and I have a great deal of agreement. I'm far right, she's far left, and we disagree on a great number of things, although we're good friends. But when it comes to third-grade reading and how important reading is in schools, we agree 100%. 
And so that's how I met Audie. Uh, and so, Audie, tell us about your group, uh, what you do, and what's important. Well, first, Senator Clark, I want to thank you for inviting me here today and giving a literacy a voice in Arkansas today. Um, I'm a co-founder of the Arkansas Dyslexia Support Group, and what I'm probably the most unlikely literacy advocate that there is. Uh, back in 2008, um, I realized that we had an enormous amount of students that were receiving 504s, and they were having to have tests and assignments read to them. Uh, audio books, you can look on your iPhone or your iPad, and you can see all the apps that read aloud to to people there's a reason um that that happens and that happens because um illiteracy in the state of arkansas is is epidemic right now we have 62.3 percent of third graders reading below grade level um and it goes all the way to the 10th grade where we have 66.1 percent reading below grade level so when i when we started the group we were focusing on reading dis- disabilities dyslexia specifically but then we found that the way that a dyslexic learns to read is through the science of reading and it's a and it's orton gillingham multisensory based so we found that the way that a dyslexic learns is the way that anybody can learn it's universally designed it's a handle on a door it's a ramp going into a building everybody can learn that and what we see nationwide is we see these dyslexia laws coming into play and then we see um shortly thereafter the science of reading coming in and arkansas actually is leading the way in this in that we've got a perfect storm we've got republicans we've got democrats we've got a governor that backs it the arkansas department of education has done a wonderful job with the rise initiative so for the first time ever before we kicked off the 2017 legislative session we had a governor who held a press conference and said look we've only got a third of our third graders reading we got to face this. we got to fix it. And it became very evident when we switched test to the park and now to the ACT Aspire because those are nationally normed tests. We can't lower the bar like we could on the ACT tab to show progress every year. Instead of kids growing, we were actually lowering the measuring stick. So it looked like every year our kids were doing better, but in reality, they only had to pass about 50% of the material to be considered grade level. Because so it's been a perfect. against each other. Well, they every school under no child left behind had to show adequate yearly progress so the mm-hmm. states were in charge of that so it's kind of like the fox watching the hen house so what happened and i mean this is a reader's digest version obviously <laughs> but what happened is we lowered the bar every single year to where like in geometry you had to learn 55 percent of the material and you were considered proficient mm-hmm. where nowhere is 55 percent proficient but the states were in charge of it now that we've gone to a nationally norm test we're actually competing to where we should. So the states were grading themselves and, and decided they were doing good, doing a good job. Yes, <laughs> that's correct. And yes, and across the country, and and I'm afraid we're going to go back to that, but that's another mm-hmm. subject for another so, discussion. If I, you don't mind, if I ask a question, no, here. go ahead, um, Paul. So, in you, you mentioned, uh, was it almost sixty what three percent or something of that of tenth graders not reading at grade level sixty six sixty six percent okay so, oh, oh. it's higher two thirds basically um, and there is no reading instruction in the tenth grade really unless right right and so 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 tenth grade li- reading level is actually somewhat advanced most people don't read at that level when we read the newspaper or something like that newspapers maybe what fifth or sixth grade reading level because tenth grade reading level or, or college grade reading level is difficult reading. So what is what does that translate to into actual functional illiteracy? Uh, how, how many kids are actually getting to the school system and they get out of the school system, whether they graduate or drop out? How many of them are are leaving the school systems 
functionally illiterate. Well, the United States Justice Department says that 14% of Americans are functionally illiterate. Okay. So well, I'm talking nationwide here, and I could see that Arkansas right. would probably f- fall in that range. We have mm-hmm. a pretty high literacy crisis, so it could be even higher than the 14%. Okay. Um, the issue is not so much that uh, the kids can't read. It's how we're teaching them to read. We have a million words in our lexicon. There's 26 letters, 44 sounds, 95 ways to write them. We've got kids that are graduating with about a 30,000-word vocabulary because we're teaching reading by sight instead of by sound, and our language is Mm sound-based. So there's only so much little pieces of information that your brain can contain and attach memories to. So we're not teaching children how to decode that that's the difference between the way we have been teaching reading and the way we need to be teaching reading. It's called the science of reading. There's decades of research with this, and it has to do with how your brain takes in the written word through functional MRI. We know how the three language centers of your brain react, and we're not firing those off because we're teaching at the speed of sight instead of at the speed of sound. Hmm. Interesting. How much of this do you think is because the families are in shambles and the, and the kids aren't – they're – their well, lives are so messed up that they can't focus on these other things that they need to be learning. It's funny you should say that because here's the thing. Uh, we have, we're to the point now where Arkansas has been a whole language balance literacy state for so many years that we have generational illiteracy. Mm-hmm. And so is a family, is a parent to blame because they were not taught to read and they can't teach their child to read? Um, when you can't do something, when you can't read yourself, you really can't help your child learn so i always tell the parents that i advocate for now you have a strong voice because i don't want you to think that you're advocating for that second grader that you see right there i'm going to tell you that you're going to be advocating for the 26 year old man that he's going to grow into where he's sitting on the couch with his son and he can't read a book to his son because that's 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 where we have been headed and i mean it's been all hands on deck to create to 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 fix that so i don't know what you're talking about with regard to the family unit being in shambles versus generational illiteracy well paul kind of related i'd like to attempt to answer your question okay i was taught to read by sight just like you're talking about i remember the books see jane run see Mm -hmm. jeff run first and second grade but you weren't sounding out the words you were memorizing the words with a story that goes along with it so they give you a story so you could reason out the story when you could see what was happening in the story then you would memorize the words that's the way i was taught to read i I had a fully functional family but that's just the way i was taught to read and it was a handicap all through school and and something that i had to overcome with time because i wasn't given it's like a, a mathematical equation you have to understand the equation before you can come out with the right answer. And all I was trying to do was memorize the answers, and I didn't know how to have the equation to, to work the equation. And pictures are meant to help you with comprehension in a, in a, in a book. They're not meant to help you decode. And we see kids that are taking a guess because they look at the picture. You know, instead of saying, I see bubbles, they'll say, I see soap. Well, those two mm-hmm. words are not even close to being the same. Right. So, I mean, it, the evidence is there. How we've been doing it has not been the right way to teach reading we we have the science behind it now and and uh we're working to change it okay we've got a caller here uh Dwayne from pine bluff go ahead uh i'm sorry i don't i didn't pay attention to who was talking about it he's talking about the book he's a c-spot uh c-spot run you know that's what we grew up with and 
back then, people actually tend to be catching on. I noticed um, there's quite a few adults in my in my area of that I guess that people that are in my in my circle of friends. I guess to put it that way, and they don't they can't they can't read the Bible, and we had Bible classes in school, and you would have Bible tests, and just like with the reading, you also had those reading tests. And you didn't go past that until you got it. And I think we we get, become so uh, hypersensitive to what we have that we don't we don't look at it as a functional need for the person in society. We're looking at well, it's it's a uh, it's a disadvantage to the black or it's to, disadvantage to the Indian or whatever. Well, no, it's disadvantage to the person who's going to grow up and have to put food on their table when they can't when they can't sit down and and read an application to fill it out. And we've gotten away from all this stuff that we did, like we had the writing tablets with the big fat pencils, and you could do the the capital L in cursive, and then you know all this stuff was a learning mechanism. You you get get these people and you try to read their their writing, and you think a, a chicken ran across it with 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 a with a brainstorm. It's crazy. And so we need to get back to the basics. We're, we're trying to, as the lady was talking about, you know, they learn to take and try to get the answers to the test instead of learning about the test. And we need to get back to the, the rational thing of teaching kids how to learn, how to understand what it is they're looking at. And it's not about whether it's black or white or green or whatever. If, I don't care if you're purple polka dotted kangaroo, if you can't pass it, don't pass them to the first grade and put them on a the second because you're going to have a first grader in a second grade. And That's we need to get over this, this, this stuff now, that we're, uh, they're currently doing. Audie, would you like to address that? Yes. Number one, um, I would be in I would be in agreement with you if we could guarantee that children are getting the proper reading curriculum. But right now, the way we are teaching reading, we we can have all these excuses of being poor or a minority. And in fact, in most reading research, that's one of the things that they do is they segregate those populations to say to show if they had growth or they didn't have growth. And so, if you look at a as a country like Cuba, not necessarily a powerhouse. But they have a 99% literacy rate. Wow. So when we look at a, when we look, and I, as a coming from a math background, we teach math in a systematic, explicit, cumulative way. That's how reading should be taught in the science of reading. We should be teaching the kids what the sounds are, what they make, how they blend together, what the words that they can make, how to, how to syllabicate words and that kind of stuff. That's not how we are teaching it. We are teaching in whole words. So those children that come from a disadvantaged background where they don't have a lot of life experiences they are starting out beneath the the bar you're advocating for phonics Uh, well it's more than just phonics the national reading panel and you know showed us all how important phonics was but they missed one step they needed to say that it needed to be taught explicitly it needs to be taught systematically and cumulative not just teaching the 40 the the, the 44 sounds Sounds. but how you can put them together and right because I mean, the English language is not a language; it's a, it's a multiple of language. It's a lot of languages kind of melded together, and so phonics doesn't always work, but it does work sometimes. Well, and it's let's, helpful. let's take that back. Break. Been a great subject to come back on. Uh, let's. It's time for us to go to a break, and we don't want to miss my first break. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're back, and we were talking about uh, phonics and whether uh, the uh, it worked 
with the number of words we have and the number of languages that come in to make English. And Audie, you want to tell us about that? Yeah, Paul was talking about uh, the English language being just a, a mix of different languages. The English language is the English language, regardless of the origin, and it is about 80 six to eighty seven percent predictable so with a million words in the lexicon you see that we can have we can teach kids how to say in the meaning of multiple words uh greek and latin our, our language has a lot of greek and latin roots and so all those can be so all those, that those can, are phonetically predictable mm-hmm, okay yes so our languages you can really tell when someone talks about the unpredictability of our language what methodology they chose from and they uh, they were taught taught from and there's a difference between philosophy and practice the science of reading is uh evidence-based it is a it's a it's it's a practice it it actually works whereas the whole language balance literacy is a philosophy and it's and it's a failed philosophy yes and i'm going to correct myself not that anybody will remember but i said earlier that representative westerman ran that bill in 2011 it was 2013 because 2013 was my first session Mm -hmm. that's when he ran it but Anyway, cool. The uh, uh, Audie, the uh, what are the top three problems that you see with public education in Arkansas? Well, teacher training seems to be a, a very big issue uh, right now in the state, um, and it has been for a while. We have a teacher shortage. Uh, the ADE is doing what they can to alleviate that shortage, but. Um, Teacher training is an issue in that a lot of people I, I found when we started talking about the science of reading, a lot of people that were actually making decisions in programming were not familiar with their own field of research. Um, that's why it was very important. The first bill that uh, Senator Clark passed in the last legislative session out of that education committee was Act 416, which is the science of reading bill, which every person that entered last fall into a college of education or a teacher prep program before they can graduate they have to pass the science of reading uh practice before they get their teacher licensure if they're k through six or if they're k through 12 special ed so that added a layer and it's and it's going to force colleges to teach the science of reading which is something they ha- they were a little bit resistant to i'm not sure why i think a lot of it has to do with just ignorance or, or ego but um that that had to be remedied first and then the second thing is so so teacher prep is the first thing the second thing is teachers that are already in the field and as you mentioned before uh you and uh senator elliott worked together where you took that baton and then she took this with the right to read bill which everybody who is already in the field teachers that are already in the field have to be trained in the science of reading which played hand in hand with uh governor hutchinson's rise initiative his rise initiative made it to where hey, we're coming in for a hard break okay. go ahead his rise seconds. initiative made it to where uh teachers have to be trained in the science of reading along with senator elliott's bill there we go and we're back and we were discussing with audie allenball uh reading and dyslexia and the uh, science of reading versus whole reading uh, i think is what she called it this whole whole basically memorized yeah you look at the whole word instead of sounding it out you just see the whole word it's it's basically memorized sight reading mm -hmm. and the third problem that we have um so it's teacher training and then um in the in the colleges and then we have um uh schools that we pass laws the legislator passed laws based on research and evidence and laws are just not i didn't realize how laws were passed until the last legislative session but it is it's hard it's hard work 
everybody is putting forth a lot of effort there's a lot of research that goes into it and then the laws are largely ignored right i mean would, would you say it's probably fair to say that 90 percent of laws are not enforced i don't in, think it's uh, that's that high paul I, th- I hope it's not that high that well, was just my, because there's so many that that, that would can't de- be that would depress me if 90 percent of the laws aggravated. some of them we may not want enforced Run, no, a, lot want, of, a lot of all we, of mine enforced, <laughs> okay but, but a lot of the laws on the books we don't want them enforced we had a 1991 law for specific learning disabilities in reading which is dyslexia that was mm-hmm. ignored it's still on the books it's been ignored since 1991 so mm-hmm. that's an entire generation of kids that we've lost Last week when we, we were meeting, and we're this meeting this week too, legislature's meeting repealing rules, mm-hmm. and we had a rule from a law in 2000, I won't tell you 2006, I may not get the year right, but I'm in the right neighborhood, uh, and they want to repeal the rule because the law was passed in 2006 and nobody's ever gone by it. That's the reason for <laughs> repealing the rule. And you and as a legislature, you just throw your hands up and say, why are we here? But that's probably the problem with two short term limits is – if you're still around and the senator calls and says, you know, we passed this law two years ago Why and it looks to me like we're still right. – it's still not being implemented. And we – well, I wish I could remember which one. We had one just recently that someone got passed uh, in the last session and found out that uh, that the agency had done nothing with this. And they had – I was in the hearing, in the committee hearing, where the fireworks <laughs> – Went off, and that you know there was all kinds of excuses as to why we had done nothing with it. <laughs> but obvious to me and that legislator is if the legislator had not brought it up, it still wouldn't It'd just be uh, continue uh, to be ignored. Still would right. be ignored. And so, I, I remember sitting in a committee on, on the I think it was the um, Senate Judiciary several years ago, and um, somebody brought up a bill. I think it was dealing with um, surplus. Um, stuff that the government had and i think in this case it was maybe the police departments that the law required them to auction it off i think and so i guess a lot of them were just giving it to other departments or selling it to other departments but not auctioning it off as the law required and so part of the argument for this bill is well we want to pass this because we're already doing it we they just admitted to breaking the law and we just want to pass a law to make it legal as i understood their explanation which is well, Seriously, we, we may talk about this at uh, at four o'clock. But uh, we had a, a judge here in Arkansas. I reposted it on Facebook yesterday here in Pulaski County, who had a standing written order not to place children with relatives and uh, DCFS employees would be in contempt, even though we had a the state law, law that we place with relatives. And that's part of the problems with the secrecy that goes around child welfare but right we'll, another, we'll, another we'll, issue but it we'll, sounds we'll, like it's fun to talk about we'll, we'll come back to uh, to, to this very about. important issue uh well we've got audie here uh audie what's more important than teaching our kids how to read absolutely nothing and this is coming from a uh, math, uh, a high school math teacher so when i say this it's it's with it's with a lot of weight that I and worry that I have put into this saying I mean other subjects are really important but there is nothing that is more foundational to our educational system than teaching children to read and and I should tell everyone I've said this in committee meetings and other places when Senator Elliott first brought a bill on dyslexia or the first one I knew about it was 2013 because that was first time I was in the legislature and she brought a bill, and I think it required the schools to uh, test for dyslexia in the first grade and so on. And I may have been the only vote against it. I mean, I may have been their uh, audience group, you know, enemy number one. <laughs> <laughs> because 
you know, here's Senator Elliott bringing it, and you know, and she's on the left, and I said, okay, just more rules and and more bureaucracy and and more money spent, and what are we going to get out of it? And then I said, I have studied this and, and got close to it to tell you that uh, I've got a cousin who's a teacher uh, who had a child uh, that was having terrible problems in school, and she contacted me, and I contacted Audie, and this has been in the last year. Uh, and uh, and they contacted me a few months later just thanking God and thanking me and thanking Audie. And it's just amazing. We had a meeting at the Education Caucus and had a lot of parents come. We have so many intelligent kids. I mean, we have kids that are just super intelligent that are that are being thought of as dumb because they ha- because they have reading disabilities that we're not catching and that we don't know about. And it is so. I mean, if you can imagine being that child, it is just so frustrating. And then the parents, you know, well, you know, you're not doing enough, and uh, and it just. Uh, and I know that's why I said the, the, her group was controversial because they go, they know the law, and they go sit down with schools, and they make them obey the law. Uh, they tell them what the law is, and so some people don't like them, but they work miracles for some of these families. Let me tell you, it's just a, it'll it just like in child welfare. Sometimes I want to cry. Sometimes with these these kids that haven't been reading, and you see them get all the way into their senior year before before somebody finds out they need help. And uh, so they are very passionate, and they make people angry sometimes. And these are the kids that on the typically on the ACT, if they've gone unidentified, when you teach a biology lesson, they you teach the terms, you teach how it all works together and all that. And then so the kids have seen it on PowerPoints. They've seen it on the board. They've seen it in the book. They're familiar with it. So these kids will make A's. They're, you know, you have an average intelligence, so they're going to make A's and B's. But then when they take the ACT, they make a 14 hmm. or they make a 13 or they run out of time. And that's because it's a cold read. Those words are a cold read. They're not familiar with it. They haven't been it. prepared for it. They haven't been prepared for there it. There wasn't anything to memorize. That, there wasn't anything to memorize, was there? That is exactly correct. And in IDEA, dyslexia has always been covered under IDEA. That's the Individuals with Disability Education Act. Since 1976, since its inception, dyslexia has been there under the category of specific learning disability. It, that's the largest category in the state of Arkansas. About 39% of kids that have IEPs are placed on uh, IEPs for specific learning disabilities. Of that, uh, we estimate somewhere around 80% of those children have dyslexia. The only reading instruction that remediates a dyslexic is multisensory, structured, explicit cumulative language being taught it's an orton gillingham framework program it's sad that since 1976 we've known this and it's been out there but it is 2017 2018 when arkansas finally did it so think about all those kids since 1976 that have been placed in that category that haven't received an appropriate education for the way their brain learns can you explain what the parameters are of, of dyslexia when i think of dyslexia i think of people just kind of having hard hard times kind of switching words up yeah. and stuff is is it more uh, is, is it more complicated than that or is it well is that most of it it is kind more, of a, it is more complicated there's processing issues the occipital temporal lobe of the brain is is uh is very slow to process these kids are are sharp smart kids but a time test they could get all the multiplication facts but they can't get them in two minutes they can't do the the sevens in two minutes and stuff like that so we're we're beating them down daily um there's uh there there is some uh letters 
and numbers that are transposed or that are flipped or however you want to say it but that's that's the old way of thinking about dyslexia it really is how your brain processes the written and spoken word and it's just different than uh the I don't want to say What's, normal, but the so, so non-dyslexic brain. Do they think it's genetic? Or, it is genetic. Or, it's linked to three genes. Okay. There's three genes that, uh, and the hallmark of a of a uh, dyslexic is a phonological processing def- deficit. Mm-hmm. So how they process sound is very different. It's very frustrating for these kids because, like I said, they're average intelligence, so they know that they're not processing the words right. They know yeah. they're not hearing. They know they're not saying them right. They know they're not reading them right. They're not seeing them. I mean, they're not. It's not a vision issue, so it's 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 is that they're not putting what's on paper to sound appropriately. What's really sad is, from a business standpoint, is when we get people this way after they've been out of school. You know, I have a, a automotive type business, and you think, well, they learned mechanics from their dad or their grandpa taught them how to work on cars, but uh, everything I've got is completely com- computerized. So the person that takes apart cars gets a printout of what all parts to take off a description of the parts the quality of the parts they're supposed to inspect so there's so much reading involved and there's so much information and so much material in every aspect of my business as automotive but there's computers and there's inventory and there's descriptions so i really can't somebody that can't reason out this and 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 have these tools i I really can't use them you're looking at you're looking at people that uh the National Institutes of Health estimate that one out of five people are impacted by dyslexia. But if you look at the numbers in Arkansas, 62% of kids can't read. So what's happening to the 42%? It's dysteachia and dysadministratia. That's what the kids are suffering <laughs> from. <laughs> so it, it, it is, is that a real word? Did you make it up? Well, I, it's, it's, it's a real word now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm known to come up with some words. <laughs> they didn't teach me that one in this school. Administration, I, yeah, I, I, those, I are, those are the things that are the, the majority of our kids suffer from. And if you look at it, just what you said, we are an agrarian state. One out of six jobs are one out of six jobs are touched by agriculture in the past you didn't have to be a proficient reader necessarily to do a a job to make a living for your family in the state of arkansas however when we move into all this to where you know fixing a car is you have to be able to read driving a tractor i don't know if y'all have seen the the new john detractor we have a farm in east arkansas i mean you almost have to be a computer computer scientist to drive it (laughs) so it's one of those things where there's not a whole lot of things that you can do if you can't read it impacts every aspect of your life your self-esteem your self-confidence your employment there's not there's nothing that we read every day and we don't think about it because we can but if you can't it's 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 a it's a dark situation all right but in the meantime we've got government schools that are that are focusing on things that that are uh, trivial uh, while wasting tons of money and lots of people's time let's let's take this back up when we get back from the break and we're back and we're still talking about reading and we were talking about reading and school choice and public schools and private schools and uh, we didn't mention charter schools but we were talking about them too uh they're public and uh we have school choice 
Audie, for uh, what did you? What do we? Well, children that are on an IEP, which is IDEA, children that are covered under that, they, they parent, have a learning disability, and so they get a well. They they, get a voucher. they qualify if they have a, meet a certain criteria. There are thirteen categories. It's not just learning disabilities, but it's emotional disturbance, autism, right. that kind of stuff. So um, those kids that are fit under IDEA, we have a situation where they can apply for the Succeed scholarship if they get it. The public school money, which is around seven thousand dollars, that would go to the public school of their choosing. Those parents can. Uh, kind of forfeit the civil rights of their child because IDEA is a civil rights law. They could forfeit that and they can take their child to a school of their choosing so long as that school is you know, one that receives a succeed scholarship money. And there's criteria that they have to fit for that. If we really wanted to see some education change, and nobody really threw an arm up and fought for these kids. The public schools didn't say, oh, we need to keep that money. We need to keep that money. <laughs> well, I, I think because often it costs them more than the $7,000. That's correct. Because and of they, the test scores. They get additional federal money depending on the poverty level of the school more than the $11,000. Yeah. So what happened is uh, nobody really threw an arm up. You didn't see the superintendent's association get up and say, oh, we, we want to keep know. these kids in the public schools. Because they were expensive, yes. assuming it's yes. because that was the reasoning, because it maybe it was costing yeah. them $25,000 a year mm-hmm. per student. One of the ways that we could – we I'd like to see us expand this is to get kids that, are, that qualify for an, a 504, which is the Education Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It, too, is a civil rights law, but the criteria for meeting a 504 is far less right. than for well, an IEP. And during the last legislative session, there was, there was a push to try to get some a pilot program going on just, just for people in general, not, mm-hmm. not people with disabilities. To, to deal with to allow parents to, to make some some choices about sending their children to other schools but back to the the 504 audit what is what is a 504 i was going to ask you that earlier it is a uh, it's a, a student that qualifies for a 504 has a it either has a disabling condition or is regarded as such there's no there's no diagnosis or anything that needed it's basically a child that that struggles and they can get accommodations they can't get a modified curriculum but they can get accommodations like extended time on a test or don't count off for spelling um audio books and that kind of stuff so those children they don't meet the the stringent criteria for idea but they they can qualify for a 504 it's like a iep light i like that idea that and, sounds uh, like an excellent would idea. it not will we not find it then more difficult for children to get 504s if they can leave if they can leave our local school if they have one <laughs> Um, oh, I'm sure that we would, but it is a civil rights violation to deny that. So the Office of Civil Rights uh, would become involved at that point. That's good. And uh, you mentioned some of these organizations, uh, and good organizations too, uh, AAEA, the Superintendent Principals Association, AEA, Teachers uh, Union, etc. Another because uh, I could have just spent the whole three hours talking about term limits instead of bringing these <laughs> interesting guests in. Uh, but when you when we take our legislators to to very short term limits again, these groups will once again be running education. Absolutely, uh, and uh, and I love them, but that's not a good thing. There's running it from a singles perspective, and it's not the students' perspective. Okay, yeah. we've got a caller, folks. Got. Uh, Carolyn Rowland, uh, here you go. Yes. Good afternoon, folks. Um, one of my favorite subjects you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have heard of Charlotte Iserbeet Thompson, or Tom, Thompson Iserbeet. Iserbeet is her last name. Um, she was the liaison uh, between Lamar Alexander, who was head of the education department, and President Reagan. 
And remember that President Reagan um, campaigned on doing away with the Federal Education Department. Uh, but I have to tell you who was in that She wrote a book. And, and in fact, it's the paper trail of, if you want to know, the book is called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And it used to be all online and that you could get it for free online. But I know it's available at Amazon. Uh, it's a large book. But it's the paper trail that she took with her out of the education department that tells you exactly what, where, and when, and who did it. And I can tell you that she told me personally that while President Reagan was trying to lay the foundation to move the education control back to the states, it was his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was doing damage control to keep it from happening. And I also was there when Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas and President Bush was then president, and as Republican president, he had our Democrat Governor Bill Clinton head up the um, Governor's Conference, which they had in Hilton Head, on Goals 2000. In Arkansas, it was our bill, H.R. 236, and myself, unpaid, and a couple other Christian ladies who went into the Education Department and Health Care in the Senate committees, and we were there uh, and fought that uh, dumb, deliberate dumbing down. It goes back... Um, John Dewey was the father of progressive education. I don't have time to tell you all the whole history of it, but uh, there is a deliberate, um, it was deliberate. It was not, you know, there's evil in this world, <laughs> and I hate to say it. Uh, I was a delegate for President Bush at the time, and I was on the National Platform Committee for the Republican Party, so I know where I speak, and uh, I know who did it, and I know why they did it, because these are globalists who want open borders, um, he never made any attempt to close borders, neither did his son, neither did, did Clinton, nor did uh, Obama. Those are all globalists who want an open border um, world, and um, th they have to d dumb down okay. the workers in order to have cheap labor. Okay, and Carolyn, we're, we're, we're headed. headed to a break here. I, I thank you for calling. That's uh, all interesting information. Uh, the I don't know, uh, we got one to got a, just a minute here Audie I don't know if you want to respond to that I, the um, sometimes there is evil in this world uh, Miss Rowland was right absolutely uh, there's enough incompetence sometimes evil is <laughs> it's not even necessary uh, intentional or unintentional un it, it, that's the that's the deal in it a lot it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or unintentional uh, if we're not teaching our kids to read mm -hmm. uh, and so whether we're fighting evil or whether we're fighting incompetence or we're fighting people who have selfish reasons for doing having their little thing. And if we're not raising readers, we're not raising thinkers. So we're not raising people that can think critically and keep themselves out of evil. The uh, we're we're coming up on a break. We've got uh, a little bit less than a minute here. Audio. Anything else you'd like to share with us? I want to say thank you for coming. It's been a great hour. Enjoyed it. You know, I'm not out there listening, but it's been a great hour being here in the studio. <laughs> and uh, I hope Dave will have you back because I know how much more that you can share about this subject. I enjoyed it, and I want to thank you again for having me. It was nice meeting you guys. Yeah, thank you for what you do. Thank you. I do want to say we're yeah. pa we're not paid. We are yeah. free. We're the one people that don't make money off of reading failure. <laughs> What's the name of your association? Arkansas Dyslexia Support Group. Arkansas Dyslexia Support Group uh, does it for free, <laughs> and <laughs> and we are out in nine eight seven. <laughs> Dave never does it that way, does he? Three, two. One <laughs> blast off. Here, let's, uh, okay, and we're back. And uh, this hour we have uh, my friend David Sterling, 
uh, who is the uh, is it the chief attorney? I don't know what your title is. I don't pay attention to titles. I do good. I got your name right, though. Yeah, it's chief counsel at the Arkansas Department of Human Services. Uh, Department of Human Services, and uh, who is running for the Supreme Court? Just any old position on the Supreme Court? Just an associate justice position. There's seven positions on the Supreme Court. Uh, there's one chief justice, and the, uh, there's six associate justices. So they're staggered terms, and there's only one uh, position that's up for election this year. And uh, I haven't known David for a lot of years. Uh, met him uh, a few years ago. He was running for some position. Attorney General. Attorney General. <laughs> and I was supporting his opponent. And uh, the uh, in that uh, race, which became very heated, uh, we had words, uh, or I had words with his campaign. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we ended up having a private meeting. Uh, and uh, I became very impressed with David Sterling, uh, just uh, extremely impressed, because there are very few people who you have such a meeting with, who will even have such a meeting, who you have such a meeting with, who especially, if unless you've ever been in the heat of a campaign and a close campaign, and with all of the stuff that's flying, and still be able to be as godly, I'm going to use that word, as godly and centered, and even though he uh, had reason to be angry and and other things, handled himself extremely well, uh, took criticism uh, uh, extremely well, uh, and uh, just uh, very few places in life. And you you find out when somebody's in a pressure cooker how, you know, what, who they really are. And then, uh, as I was uh, chairing uh, joint performance review uh, and the agencies that all circle the wagons, uh, David had the misfortune of being in this position. And, uh, and uh, we became even closer friends, although a lot of people who were pushing for me thought he was the enemy. And I tried to get the word out that he was not the enemy, that somebody had to be the attorney at DHS. And if we were going to have an attorney there doing the best to defend that agency and to and to interpret the law for them, you could not have a better man than David Sterling. And because I was beating on them like a battery ram, <laughs> it put him in a very bad place. We had a lot of private conversations uh, that I, I can't go into, uh, but uh, he was always uh, always for kids, always for doing the right thing, and always helpful. But he, had, of course, had to do his job, and I had to do my job, uh, as often happens in politics and so sometimes we were crossways as our at our jobs, but we were never crossways as far as the purpose uh, that we were uh, trying to intend. And uh, I should also say I got thrown out of a courtroom back in May. We we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, but it was not the first time I'd been shown thrown out of a child welfare case. But in previous times, it had something to do with DHS and DCFS. And David Sterling got that corrected. Uh, that uh, so I was kind of shocked when I got thrown out the last time because I, I thought we had this fixed, but this time it was a judge. It didn't have, it didn't have anything to do with them. So, but I really uh, uh, had him come today because uh, I'm really interested in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court race, what they do. And I'll just David, you can tell us. I think everybody probably knows about you, but uh, tell us about yourself and uh, and tell us why you're running for the Supreme Court. Well, I appreciate all the kind words, and uh, you're right. I mean. Uh, it's all been professional between uh, you and I from the time we first met uh, back in 2013 or 2014, I believe. And uh, 
uh, you've always been very respectful. And I appreciate that. And I, I know that you're out trying to do your job as a as a senator, and I think you do an exceptional job at that. And uh, appreciate you continuing to try to uh, help and protect kids uh, in in this capacity that you've been uh, working on for the last few years. Uh, but you know, I, I grew up in Texarkana uh, on the right side of the state line, Arkansas side. Uh, and go uh, hogs, <laughs> go hogs. We were the original Razorbacks. I'll uh, say that we we had the uh, the mascot first before the U of A adopted it years later. But um, uh, went to school down there in, in, in Texarkana. Uh, graduated back in '87, so it's been about 31 years now. And uh, my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a nurse, and uh, they really really instilled in me a, 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 an appreciation for hard work. You know, my dad worked. Um, long hours and weekends trying to uh, put food on the table. My mom put herself through nursing school as an adult to help make ends meet. And um, I moved off to Little Rock about 31 years ago to attend ULR, uh, where I did my bachelor's degree, my master's in public administration, and my law degree, and met my wife about 28 years ago. And she's a Little Rock girl. And we ended up putting down roots here in uh, Little Rock, Little Rock area uh, 26 years ago when we got married. And uh, I still make my way back and forth to Texarkana quite a bit. Um, was down there just a couple of weeks ago for my mom's birthday. and um, But anyway, I went to work for a small law firm right out of law school, then um, then went to work, for, did that for about five years, then for a very large law firm for about four years, and then my own law firm for about seven years, doing business and commercial litigation primarily, and then um, uh, three and a half years ago, Governor Hutchinson asked me to be chief counsel at the Arkansas Department of Human Services. So I set aside my private practice and went into public service. And so now I'm hoping to continue that public service on the Supreme Court. Very good. Uh, why does it uh, make a difference? And I'm going to call you a true conservative. I, I suppose that the judges have so many rules about what you can and cannot do. I'm a suppose and I can say whatever I want to say. And so I know for a fact that you are a true conservative uh, in a around an area where we question people's conservatism a lot. Uh, what difference does it make if we ha- not you not saying that you are one? What difference does it make if we have a true conservative on the Supreme Court? Well, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I, I've defined myself as a judicial conservative in this race. You know, I mean, I'm trying to bring to the court uh, what I term as judicial conservatism. Uh, you see it on full display. You're going to see it on full display for the next uh, couple of weeks as Brett Kavanaugh goes through the Senate confirmation hearings uh, in D.C. I see those confirmation hearings started this morning. I heard a little bit of it uh, this morning and uh, heard a little bit more of it on the way over here today. Uh, they really haven't gotten kicked off just yet. They're just kind of full of criticism right now and everything. But when he starts testifying, you're going to hear him talk about that he's a constitutionalist that he's an originalist, that he's a textualist, that he believes in judicial restraint, that he believes in separation of powers. And I think those are all important qualities. And, you know, the same uh, qualities were and and judicial philosophy was espoused by Neil Gorsuch when he went through his Senate confirmation hearings uh, last year. And you, you heard the same thing a few years ago when Samuel Alito went through his. You heard the same judicial philosophy when... Clarence Thomas went through his judicial uh, hearings. Uh, we're all members of the Federalist Society, you know, and, uh, you know, we all kind of adhere to the same judicial philosophy uh, when it comes to those those particular uh, matters. 
I think it makes a difference. It's like it makes a difference on the U.S. Supreme Court to have a someone someone who is an originalist, a constitutionalist, uh, especially when you have nine members of the uh, Supreme Court. You know, you can have one person swaying the vote one way or the other in these very close cases. The same thing is true in Arkansas. We don't have nine justices. We only have seven justices. And I think it's very critical to have someone who believes that judges should not legislate from the bench on the court, that believes in separation of powers, believes that the legislature is the proper body to pass laws, that the executive branch enforces those laws, and the judicial branch is there to interpret the laws and to apply the law uh, fairly and impartially to the facts and circumstances of each unique case. And that's what I what I will what a pledge to the so, people of Arkansas that I'm going to do. If I may, so I was talking to a, a judge candidate some time back, and um, I, don't, I understand a lot of times you can't really answer very many questions. But one particular question that he was he was willing to answer was I asked him about judicial precedent, and um, so the way he described what he believed his duty was as a judge to follow judicial precedent was that if the <coughs> Supreme Court declared the sky was gray, he believed he had a duty to. Um, declare in, in all of his rulings that the sky was gray, regardless of what color the sky actually was at, at the time. And so his, his belief was that precedent was binding law, regardless of the actual truth. Well, there there is some limitation to that. I mean, obviously, uh, lower court justices, um, I'm running for the Supreme Court, right. and precedent is very, very, very important to a Supreme Court justice. But it's even, but but the Supreme Court has the ability to change precedent right. in appropriate circumstances. Where you're right, where if the law says that the sky is gray and it's clearly blue, blue, you know the Supreme Court has a duty to say that. But as a lower court justice, you know whether it's a, a district court judge or whether it's otherwise known as a municipal court just, mm-hmm. judge or a, a circuit court judge right. or even someone on the court of appeals. Uh, they should be following the precedent set by the Arkansas Supreme Court and the Constitution, more importantly. I think the Constitution should always be the first priority. But to the extent that the uh, Supreme Court is the one that speaks to the interpretation of the Constitution, if the Supreme Court has spoken on it, then I think the lower courts need to, you know, in the vast majority of those cases, follow that precedent, unless they see something that's clearly wrong. I mean, just clearly, clearly wrong. You know, so, so they still have a duty to uphold their oath, to uphold the Constitution, even even if the Supreme Court has declared that you know what we're going to do this, that, or the other to hell with the Constitution. The lower court judge still has a duty to uphold the Constitution, and it may be overthrown later, but he has a duty to uphold his oath. Uh, he or she does have the uh, the duty to uphold that, but to the extent that the Supreme Court has already interpreted that provision and said this is what that provision says, then they need to follow that precedent. Typically, unless again. Unless it's clearly wrong, like right. you know, Plessy versus Ferguson was clearly wrong. I don't, I don't <laughs> think someone's going to uh, be admonished for stepping out there and saying, you know, I believe this old precedent is clearly wrong. And as you get Brown versus Board of Education, that says that separate is inherently unequal, mm-hmm. unlike what Plessy versus Ferguson said. So, you know, I, I think that again, the, the Supreme Court is the ultimate uh, court that's going to interpret the Arkansas Constitution. So, in layman terms, David, what I'm hear, hearing you say is that you believe that there was original intent whenever uh, the Constitution was passed, and that original intent is uh, is etched in stone 
So you hear other people say that the Constitution is a living and breathing document that has to change with the times. And, you know, they'll try to get away from the original intent. And someone that's not a constitutionalist or someone that's not a conservative is not going to go back and read the papers and read all the other things that goes along with what is written. So you believe in the original intent and upholding that instead of trying to change it with the times. So you hear on the Second Amendment, you hear people say, well, that was written for militias and we don't have militias anymore. So uh, so as it is written, muskets, as it's written, we have to update it to apply it to the times. But if you read the men that that wrote it, they they had an intent, I believe, and I believe that intent is still as valid today as it was the time they wrote it. Well, I agree with you, but I mean, I do believe that the Constitution is a living and breathing document only to the extent that uh, the the founders provided a way to amend it. You know, if people want to amend the Constitution, they can do that, but they shouldn't be amending it through court cases and through the judiciary. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't change unless we change it through amendment, not because somebody wants to update it in their own thinking and if the constitution is silent the constitution is silent but you know you, uh and if you want to change it if you want to make it speak on a particular topic there is a way to there's a process it. there's a process yeah and that's the way you should follow well it. it should be a very difficult process because it shouldn't happen it shouldn't happen well, that often if you look at the u.s constitution it doesn't get, doesn't get changed very yeah, often and, and there's you know i know we hear a lot of and sometimes precedent bugs me uh and when i say that it's usually on one particular amendment uh that we've come down, and I think we're getting to a place that we're being unconstitutional. But as David said, Constitution first, then precedent. Uh, and but you can see why precedent's necessary. Precedent because you want to know when you go to court. I mean, you want to know what rules you're living by. And if this judge is going to interpret it one way, and this judge over here is going to interpret it another way, so it's important that everybody's on the same page. Uh, hopefully they're on the same page and they're right. <laughs> right. Uh, I think that's right. What and, and, there, and there is room for judgment, and I think I think that precedent is probably one of those things that that helps to 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 um, keep things more standardized when there's rooms when there's room for judgment. It's like and, and for instance, maybe there's a reckless driving charge on the books. There's a, there's a law about reckless driving, and that's a matter of judgment about what qualifies. And so maybe judicial precedent would be one of those things that. Well, they set a standard, and so it's it's reasonable to continue to follow that standard. Whereas there's some other things that are very cut and dried. You don't need judgment on some of those other other issues. Well, sometimes I mean, when you get, have precedent, one thing that's really really important, and I think that uh, Senator Clark is good at this. But if you have precedent out there that is kind of out of step with what the legislature thinks uh, the law should be, or what people think the law should be, mm-hmm. then when the court interprets a law or provision of the Constitution. Then it's inherent on the um, on the legislature to try to correct that and to try to keep their finger on the pulse and uh, their ear to the ground as far as uh, what's going on out there as laws are changing. If they need to be corrected, they correct those through the legislative process and through the amendment process. And with that, we're going to take a break. And here we are back with uh, David Sterling, uh, who is the chief counsel at Arkansas DHS and running for Supreme Court. And you may have figured out who I'm going to vote for. Uh, uh, while he's here today, and we're talking about judicial precedent and uh, conservative judges and how they uh, interpret the Constitution and the law versus write it, because that's the legislature's job, uh, and that's something that was always annoyed me when judges did that. Now it annoys me even more as a legislator, and I just 
uh, as I've given David a dirty look across the well, well, and, 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 I, and I've run into to attorneys that will literally come out and say that, well, judges do make law. And that, that's pretty offensive to me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but how do you – one of the things we talk about off-air, that how do you run – for a judgeship, you know, what can you talk about? There, there's so much you can't talk about. What can you talk about? Well, I, honestly, I think that you can talk about your judicial philosophy. You know, I, I don't think that you can talk about uh, specific issues that will come before the court. If you do, then when that issue does come before the court, you're going to be you're, you're going to have to recuse. You're going to have to be under a duty to recuse from that particular case. And uh, so, I try to be real careful. I try not to talk about any political issues that might come before the court but i i don't see anything wrong at all about talking about how you see the world generally and how you you know what your guide is as far as how you're going to look at cases in other words what what, what is your judicial philosophy and i've described that already in the first segment here as far as being a constitutionalist and originalist and uh you know somebody uh, uh heard somebody describe something a while back that i've tried to apply to my race and that is uh when someone is uh, tilling a garden, which I did quite a bit in my younger years as an adult. I mean, as a child, my father used to punish me by making me get out there every spring and run the tiller from one side of the backyard to the other side many times to plant uh, tomatoes, peppers, uh, squash, cucumbers, okra. And made you into a better person. Oh, well, okra. God, I, I hated harvesting that stuff. Sticky. Really you're, you're my fist bump on that. Huh? Yeah. But uh, he, he used to tell me, you know, don't look at the tiller as you're tilling those rows. Look at a fence post on the other side of the yard and just kind of just keep your eye on that and till that row. If you're just looking at the front of the tiller, when you get to the end of the row, you're going to look back and you're going to see a pretty jagged row that you've just tilled. But if you keep your eye focused on that fence post on the other side of the yard, you're going to have a pretty straight row. And my i apply that to this to this race because if i win this race it's an eight-year term over the course of that eight years i'm going to try to keep my eyes focused and fixed on the arkansas constitution and the u.s constitution and i think by the time i get to the end of my term as long as i keep my eyes fixed on that with every single case my first thing is to look at the arkansas constitution or the u.s constitution whichever one's applicable and just you know keep applying that every single case it's, it's my starting point in every case and when i get to the end of my term i'm hoping to look back and see a pretty straight narrow row where i followed the constitution in every case an eight-year term out of all of that and you and the one thing i would pick up on is the is, 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 is the eight-year term so so we want to we've got issue three where we want to set uh where some people uh want to set the legislature back the house to three two-year terms and the supreme court is an eight-year term and does it, does it actually affect the Supreme Court as well? No, but I'm oh, just saying super, had, okay. that oh, Supreme one Court term has, is has, has Yeah, that was uh, Amendment 80, the same the th- same thing that kind of sets your blood pressure off every time I mention Amendment 80. But uh, Amendment 80 is what set the eight-year terms for Supreme Court justices and for Court of Appeals justices. Okay. We're going hmm. – they're letting me know we're going to a break in about 25 seconds. Okay. One thing that, one thing that I've heard you say that you were raised in a Christian family in, in – uh, it was traditional values very much in, in Arkansas. Uh, we believe that the Constitution was based on biblical principles. Well, I, d- I don't necessarily disagree that the people that, that crafted it were Christians. You know, so. And we'll come back to that answer in just a moment. And we're back here with uh, David Sterling, Chief Counsel at DHS and candidate for uh, Arkansas Supreme Court. 
and we've been talking about a number of issues. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, that bugs me, and it's probably necessary, but it bugs me is that uh, judicial candidates can talk about so little. One of the things that I heard David say earlier was that that if the Constitution is silent, it's silent. And I like that, and I picked up on something in that, and he can't say I picked he can't agree <laughs> that I picked up on anything in that, that I don't know if other people will pick up on, because the U.S. Constitution is silent on abortion. And right. that's one of the things when somebody says, if the, if, the, if the Constitution is silent, in other words, if it's there, it's there, right. and if it's if it's not there, it's not there, and there you can say it's constitutional or unconstitutional. But if the Constitution doesn't say anything about it, it's neither constitutional or non or unconstitutional. So sometimes it's just simply outside of jurisdiction. It's, just, it's outside of the Constitution. It's the Constitution case, says that, by the way. <laughs> in which case, you know that uh, if it if we hadn't found it supposedly, although it's not there anywhere, if you read it from from cover to cover, end to end, cover to cover, it's not that big. Uh, when you read the U.S. Constitution. Uh, you don't find anything uh, that they base that law on. But uh, had they not made that decision, then state by state, uh, as we were doing before Roe versus Wade, could make whatever decision they wanted to make about Correct. abortion. Correct. And I think, uh, I think Alan and, and I probably agree on this, and David probably can't answer this, but I think we probably agree that, that was a, a major case that, that, that we should have kicked back a lot harder against when that happened with the Supreme Court, and, and I, I don't know exactly what the correct answer from the states should have been at that point, but it should have been a lot, a lot more aggressive than what it was. I'm going to stay out of the abortion debate. That was, <laughs> I mean, and we want you to stay out of it because if it comes up, we want we don't want you to have to recuse. I mean, that's that's the crazy thing about. But go ahead. Yeah, okay. you know that's the Tenth Amendment. The power is not delegated to the United States by the by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people that's the 10th amendment and that is why i'm a republican (laughs) small government closer to the people i'm a reagan republican and uh and that's one of the the you know there are good things that came out of the civil war Uh, obviously we ended slavery terrible terrible uh uh scar on this nation for for that atrocity agreed but one of the bad things that came out of it was a much stronger federal government uh that we've been suffering from and i will you know got david here today uh, probably won't apply on this either but didn't think about it till i was in the legislature but the 17th amendment uh one of the reasons because you know when i was in county government on the quorum court we were basically a rubber stamp, except for a very few things. Then I get to state government, and I find out, well, dead government, we're a rubber stamp. I mean, we're like five, six federal with a veneer of state over it. And when you look at the DHS budget and you look at the, the education budget, five, all these five, things coming in. Five billion state funds. And the highway budget that we have. 25 billion federal. That we yeah. literally have to pass laws or the money doesn't come in. If the money doesn't come in, you're broke. So uh, you look at those things, but what people – I mean – Electing your senators, U.S. senators, by popular vote sounded so good. But what it did was the Senate, U.S. Senate, was the protection for the state. Is Now you have Congress and the Senate telling the state what to do, where if your U.S. senators were were picked, elected by the House and the Senate of your state delegation, they're never going to tell the state well, it, it, I think what to it, do. I think it maybe effectively annihilated the concept 
of the United States government being a, a union of states because it's, it's a union of states rather than a country of people. It, it, I think it was designed to be a function um, or a servant of the states as entities of themselves. But when you took away the, um, the, the concept of senators being appointed by states rather than being elected by people, I think it, it, it kind of annihilates the concept of the um, the federal government being a, a function of the states rather than a function of the people in general. Mark Levin talks about that quite a bit in the Liberty Amendments. I read that book several years ago, and uh, he's I mean he's got a, I think a whole chapter devoted to that particular subject, that particular topic. Um, so he makes a lot of good points there for sure. David, you mentioned earlier the Federalist Society and that you belong to it, and I think you said that Brett Kavanaugh belongs to it. And Neil Gorsuch belongs to it. And for those of you who do not remember, Neil Gorsuch is the first Supreme Court appointing to uh, by Trump to the Supreme Court. And Kavanaugh is his second. And that's why I am not a never-Trumper. And all my friends that are are wrong. <laughs> it would be Hillary, and we would have – we would have at least one, you know, maybe the other. We would have the other retirement, but we would have we would have a five four Supreme Court in the wrong direction. What is the Federalist Society? Well, it's a society. I mean, it was uh, basically formed, I think, in about 1982, and really talks about the principles that I just now mentioned. You know, it's about separation of powers, uh, limited government, um, and just the foundational principles. Um, of of our country you know and uh they do believe uh strongly in uh original intent uh i think you know scalia was also a member of the federal society uh, you know there have been times and uh over the last uh 40 years where uh i say 40 years yeah it's about 40 years now uh that I, 1982. It's I need to do math here and everything. I'm not, I'm not trying 35. to do math here and everything, but since 1982, <laughs> particularly in the late 90s and early 2000s, particularly in the Bush administration, you know, the Federal Society began, began really uh, gaining a lot of strength as far as uh, having some influence on uh, the judicial process, as far as a nomination process. You know, President Bush uh, basically kind of decided that he was no longer going to use the American Bar Association uh, to vet his candidates, uh, his nominees for the Supreme Court, and instead started looking toward uh, Leonard Leo, who is the executive vice president of the Federal Society and uh, members of the Federal Society to try to help him, you know, get a good sense of who some judicial conservatives are out there. And uh, uh, Leonard Leo helped marshal through Justice Scalia. I'm sorry, not not Scalia, but uh, Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Roberts, Justice uh, uh, Alito, Justice Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh, he's taken leave of absence from the Federal Society in order to help uh, marshal him, his nomination through the uh, Senate as well. And uh, really just kind of, like I say, uh, just um, uh, really preaching the uh, original intent of the Founding Fathers and uh, the Constitution as a standard uh, for looking at cases and so forth. So, um, you know, during the early uh, days of the Bush administration, he – President Bush got a lot of criticism for leaning on them uh, because the uh, American Bar Association had for so long had kind of a monopoly on vetting Supreme Court justices, and now they're being criticized again, uh, Trump is, for relying so heavily on the uh, Federal Society, who put together the list of what, 25, 26 candidates that Trump said during the uh, uh, pr- uh, presidential election that he was going to pick justices off that list that was a list that was helped in large part uh compiled by the federal society and um 
you know, again, that's I, I'm proud. I'm a proud member of the Federal Society. I think that what they do is is a good thing, not a bad thing. Original intent. That's what I wanted to hear. Well, the main thing is judges can't really talk on on a lot of these political issues and so forth. So the only thing you have to go on is what is their judicial philosophy. And I think that you know the principles of the Federal Society and what they teach. You know, if if you know that someone that you're looking at to vote for in an elected judge, you know, you, you know, we don't run as as Republicans. We don't run as Democrats. We don't run as Libertarians. We don't. We're nonpartisan races. And when you the rules of uh, the code of judicial conduct prohibits us from talking about cases that might come before the court, and then you have Amendment eighty that basically made judges nonpartisan, so citizens really don't have anything to look at to try to figure out what these judges are running on. They don't have any any index indices at all. And so what I try to do is at least talk about my judicial philosophy and give that as an end. As a you know, as an indis- indication of how I would rule on particular cases, or how I'd, not not how I'd rule, but how I'd look at them. How so, I'd evaluate them. so I have a I have a question, a kind of a I guess a kind of a complaint against the the system, if you will. So right now, a lot of times when cases are argued, especially before the Supreme Court and such, um, the arguments that are used are generally prefaced with, well, this case back in nineteen. 19- 89 said this and this other case in, in 2001 said this as opposed to actually making the argument based on the actual constitution itself saying you know, our, our, the Arkansas constitution says this or the U.S. constitution says this and it means this and that's why we should uphold, hold the law in this way or we should throw the law out in this way. It, it, to me, it's kind of frustrating to, to have 47 different cases cited as justification for a ruling rather than well, the law says it, and the Constitution says it, and it's consistent with it. As, can, can we not get back to a, a rational English So you really don't like precedent, do you? <laughs> well, I, I think it's uh, – precedent is not, is not a basis for establishing right and wrong. Precedent is a, is a, um, is, is, is a convenience, if you will, but, but it's not a basis for establishing constitutionality. Well I, I, well, I think that Senator Clark had it right a little bit earlier when he was talking about this. I mean, uh, president – actually add some stability to the right. law. No, I agree. I mean, if you want to attract business to Arkansas, you need to have a stable set of laws. Mm-hmm. If you want to have a citizenry who understands what the rules are, you need to have a stable set of laws. And if if a court, if the Supreme Court interpreted a constitutional provision for the first time in 1962, mm-hmm. then that becomes the leading case. And then every time it comes up after uh, that particular issue comes before the court, you need to know that there's some stability in the lower courts, and eventually when it comes back to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has the opportunity to look at it again afresh and everything. Right. But I think that it's important to have precedent out there for people to follow. But I, I agree with you. You should always – you should always, and, and I will do this too as a, as a judge. I will always look back to the Constitution first, then see how the courts have interpreted over the years and see mm-hmm. if I agree with it that that's, that that's you know appropriate. Uh, well, yeah, if it's appropriate or if it's consistent with the Constitution itself. And right. if it's not, then I think that it's inherent on – I think it's an obligation of the court to kind of step in and say, you know what, we've gotten it wrong in for the past, all these right. years, and it's time to actually set the record straight. And we're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> There's, you know, and it, it's more difficult with the U.S. Constitution because uh, it's so difficult to amend it, as it should be. Uh, but there, there are ways of fixing these things, and I don't think there's been a – 
a session since I began in 2013 uh, that we have not dealt with in the session and said we had to deal with some law that we were correcting because of a decision that the courts made. And uh, so that's that's one way of correcting a precedent is the legislature comes back in session and says, that's not the way we meant – and maybe you read it and say, well, I can see how they got that. Right. Sometimes Some, you sometimes can. You, some, sometimes you read it and say, I don't know how in the world they got that. And sometimes but, it's like but, you but, just straight up disregard the law. And that's one of the things you're very careful about. I mean, anybody that's been in these long committee meetings and this, this whole grueling process of getting a bill through, is some. I've had multiple bills that had multiple problems in them that I knew what I wanted to do. Bill writers knew what we wanted to do. But I was thankful that somebody else brought up, man, if you read this this way – there's four different ways of reading it. Sometimes that, that's, that's not what you intended. Right. Sometimes, so, right. uh, guys, we're going to have to. We're going to go to a break, and we'll come right back. Right. And we're back, and we're here with David Sterling. We've been talking about uh, the Supreme Court and precedents. And uh, David, tell us uh, the is this uh, an election or is this a runoff? Or of course, it's got to be an election. But but exactly, how does this work? Well, uh, again, a term that you're not real happy with, Amendment 80, <laughs> that passed back in, back in 2000, <laughs> passed by the voters of Arkansas back in 2000. They made uh, all the judicial races that had historically been partisan races, they made them nonpartisan. But they also uh, moved the election for judges up to what, for everybody else, is a primary election in May. And uh, and so the, the general election for judges we had back on may 22nd it was what everyone else's primary but there were three people in that race if there are only two people in the race then the race would already be over because one person would have gotten a majority but because there are three people in the race uh no one got a majority in in and uh in the general election so now we're in a runoff and for for partisan uh candidates the runoff is three weeks after the after the primary election but for judges our runoff is actually on the uh, ballot in November when everyone goes to vote for governor, lieutenant governor, and so on, and Senate, and so on down the line. So um, uh, in the race, you had Courtney Goodson, myself, and Kenneth Hickson, and Kenneth Hickson ended up coming in third place uh, with about 28% of the vote. And so they took the top two finishers, myself and Courtney Goodson, and now we're in a statewide runoff that'll be on the November ballot. So Hopefully that kind of explains everything because a lot of people around the state are a little bit confused because they thought we had our election already or didn't really understand how it works. But uh, I'm out there and hoping real, ho- hoping uh, that I will pick up uh, most of Kenneth Hickson's supporters and everything. You know, I'm uh, working real hard, just again trying to get my message out. Some people ask me who my opponent is, and uh, generally I tell them that the calendar is my opponent because the more time I spend with voters, the more time I, I spend describing my judicial philosophy separation of powers constitutionalism originalism the more people say oh this this is the guy we need so i'm out there kind of in a battle against time just trying to visit with as many uh, voters as what i can trying to talk to the people that were supporting kenneth hickson and who were opposed to my opponent uh in that uh general election and trying to win them over and i hope to do that there's one thing that I'd like to clear up. I've heard you speak several times at different committees around, and you've always been positive. You always have been talking about yourself and the way you see things, and your principles and, and integrity seems important with you. You know, there's been a lot of negative things in this campaign, and I haven't ever heard anything negative from you about your opponent or talking about your opponent. 
you've always talked about yourself and your philosophy. So I'd like for people out there to know a lot of the negative stuff that's come up in these campaigns has not come from you personally. Well, that's right. There has been a third party that's been involved in this race, and uh, it's a fight that began uh, with my opponent uh, with that other group back in 2016 when she ran for chief justice of the Supreme Court whenever that came up for election two years ago. And uh, there was a pretty negative back and forth uh, between her and that third party group and uh, now after she lost that race she had to go back and finish out her eight-year term uh, which comes to a, a close in, at the end of this year and so now she's running for re-election for her position that she was elected to originally back in 2010 and uh, that fight has continued from 2016 but i wasn't on the ballot in 2016 didn't have anything to do with it then don't have anything to do with that fight now I see it as kind of a little bit of a sideshow that's been going on. I, I hate that the that people, you know, uh, have tried to, you know, connect me with the negative publicity that's been going on. I don't have anything to do with it. I don't have any control over it. Uh, it's unethical for me to coordinate in any way, whether tell people to stop, you know, doing that or tell people to continue doing that. Uh, so I just don't engage in it at all. I basically just have just been trying to run my own positive campaign, talking about my own judicial philosophy and giving Arkansans an, uh, a choice on the well, ballot. Well, I'll testify that to be true. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about that. I fear that some of our rules, while they may make a lot of sense on how judges run, uh, may lead to some of that uh, – You know, I think there's a vacuum of other things. Not that there's not plenty of negative campaigning in other ways uh so uh does the judiciary need any reform (laughs) (laughs) does the legislature (laughs) yes absolutely well there's probably some there's probably always room for improvement to tell you the truth and uh you know i I have a lot of respect for judges around the state i mean you know i get asked a lot of time how would you have ruled on this particular matter how would you have ruled on this particular matter and, you know, I've served as a special justice on the Supreme Court before uh, when there was a, a conflict a few years ago. Uh, governor asked me to sit special, and I did that in a couple of cases. And, I, you know, the cases are not real easily decided. I mean, I had a banker's box full of briefs that were written from both sides arguing really good legal points. And it, we took weeks and weeks to try to make it, you know, read through all the briefs and make a good, solid decision and everything. And so it's not always uh, an easy decision that you can just say, oh, this is the way I would have ruled. Well, you didn't have the benefit of reading through all those briefs right. and listening to those oral arguments and everything else. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that there probably is some room for improvement, but I don't think it's always just, you know, like a, a little bumper sticker or something like that. <laughs> I think there's more to it than that. Okay. We've just got uh, about – 20 25 seconds left david won't thank you for taking off work uh and coming over here today i had called and asked him to be one of my special guests and uh, i knew it would be difficult uh with all of the duties and everything he's got going on but uh he agreed to do that and uh we wish you all the luck in your uh in your race i turned in leave time to be here today so in case anyone's wondering. you're not on the state you're not on the state payroll so, so, so you're not you're i'm not. not on the state payroll uh, right and now. we're out and we are back uh here with uh, paul calvert and uh rd hopper the power panel and i hope that we have joe churchwell on the phone i heard a bell ring uh, there you go how you doing joe all right i'm doing fine sir how are you I'm doing great. Hi yeah. to Paul and everybody else there too. Hey, I guess how are you? Here in person. 
Yep. Great. It would be funner that way. Be it more fun. M- more funner. Can we say, call it, say it that way? That's the correct way to say it. <laughs> well, it's good to have uh, uh, Joe Churchwell, uh, my good friend on today, who is uh, an attorney uh, who uh, does all kinds of things. But so we, we uh, won't hold the, we won't hold it against him today that he's an attorney. But specializes in family and child welfare. At least he's known for that and very good at that. And the um, uh, we met, believe it or not, uh, folks that are family familiar with the Stanley case. We knew each other before that. In fact, Joe had told me. You want to talk about prophetic? Joe had told me that there was some DHS stuff that I really needed to look into, and some families that he had that he'd like me to talk to. And this was before uh, the Stanley kids were taken, and and all of that, uh, which uh, then he didn't have to talk to me very much <laughs> they had you, my had my you, attention you, you front got, and center yeah you, you got the picture didn't you i got the picture mm. pretty yeah. quickly uh, then i came back to joe and said now who was it you wanted me to talk to <laughs> right and and that's when i really got deep into it and you know, i can't tell you how surprised i was the the effort that you put into it and that the other senators and representatives did with the joint performance review committee i mean you guys took it and ran and the only problem is accountability. You know, the things that we were seeing three years ago, we're still seeing. And something's got to change. Either we're going to have to get some relief from the federal courts to put some injunctions in place, um, which is really sad because there's already an injunction in place. It's called the Constitution <laughs> of the United States. And the Bill of Rights says, you know, we are not to be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures. And probable cause must be sworn by oath or affirmation, and in particularly described the places to be searched or the persons and things to be seized. And you saw the email, Senator Clark, straight from Deputy Director Keith Smith, that said, we're not subject to the Fourth Amendment. Hmm. So the, and, what are they, Martians? No, they are, <laughs> um, they are conducting according to them, civil investigations. No, 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 I mean, what, what, what do they think they are? Are they Martians? Do they come from another planet? I mean, do they think they're not subject no. to it? <laughs> no, they, not only do they think they're not subject to it, she put it in writing. It's an exhibit to the Stanley complaint. <laughs> she said, we're not subject to the Fourth Amendment because we conduct civil investigations. And I tried to tell her that the Constitution doesn't say anything about civil. And if you come into my house and you violate my rights, I don't care if you're a civilian or a law enforcement <laughs> officer. It's unreasonable. You can't do it. And I really thought she was kidding because, <laughs> Senator Clark, you remember when we met, we were at my office? I do. I remember very well. Okay. I thought she was kidding. You know, or I would have just said, you know, Senator Clark and I are going to go get some lunch and not <laughs> wasted an hour. But they really believe that these statutes have carved out an exception to the Constitution. Mm. And they have. It's kind of backwards, they isn't been it? Challenged. It is. <laughs> and. You know, that's the problem. We're still alive in the federal courts, but we shouldn't have to go there. This state should be able to conduct itself in a manner that is that comports with both the United States Constitution and our Constitution. The Arkansas Constitution uh, affords even more protection than the United States Constitution. So, 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 so did the local courts suggest that that was reasonable? Which part? Did, I mean... What's, for the most part, they did. So, so the local courts were actually Joe said for which part? I think. Oh, oh, so for the for the idea that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them because they're civil. Yes, yes. That's insane. A, a so, case that, 
It is, but, the, but right now the state court judge, it's on appeal. Uh, the Arkansas Court of Appeals hasn't seen it yet. It hasn't been submitted yet because they take a three-month break or something like that. Okay, well, let's back but, up Let's back up for our listeners and make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. But first, first thing, let's uh, because I am sure there is some listener out there that does not know what the Fourth Amendment says. So, without qu- quoting it verbatim, what what is the Fourth Amendment? Well, I pretty much just did that. The, um, the people shall not be subject to unreasonable searches or seizures, and warrants shall issue upon probable cause sworn by oath or affirmation, particularly describing the places to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. There's a statute in the Child Maltreatment Code, uh, 1218-609, that says in a, a child abuse investigator, if they get a hotline call, open an investigation, they may enter a home or any place a child may be. And if the parent says, no, you can't come in, they can go to the judge, get an ex parte order, meaning you don't have an opportunity to, to uh, give your side of the story to the judge, and they will get what's called an order of investigation. And what that is is a warrant, or it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it's, it's these orders that are issued by these juvenile court judges do not particularly describe the places to be searched or the persons or things to be seized. Most times they're sworn out either by an anonymous informant, so there's no sworn oath or affirmation, or somebody that they say they can't reveal because the identity of the reporter forbidden to reveal it. Right, so, so you got somebody going to a judge saying, we got a call and either we don't know who made the allegation or we can't tell you who made the allegation, and here's the allegation. So we want you to give us an order that makes these parents allow us to invade their homes, take their children out, x-ray them, invade the bodies, the minds of the children, and they, and they have these orders issued. Wow. And I challenged it, and the circuit court um, said, nope, nothing wrong here. <laughs> so Sounds like we need some judges to be impeached. So, I think we need uh, a recall process for all of the constitutional officers in the state. Let, let's go back and rehash a little bit because we probably have someone listening who <laughs> is not familiar with the Stanley case. And uh, 2015, January 2015, eight children in Garland County uh, were removed from their home uh, by the crime. Not, they were not removed by DCFS. Uh, who is also called DHS, and in some states, CPS. But that's the Department of Children and Family Services, uh, Division of Children and Family Services. They weren't removed by them. In fact, they were against removing them. Uh, they were removed by, by the CACD and the Sheriff's Department, which is the Crimes Against Children Division of the State Police, which gets complicated because they do the criminal investigations and don't actually normally remove children. Uh, they re- Those two together removed the children, and uh, after they had been there for five hours, I think they sent a sheriff's department, sent a SWAT team, and uh, they spent five hours investigating. They sent an ambulance. They sent a doctor. Uh, they The parents were accused of poisoning the kids, so they checked out all the kids. They all checked out healthy, and which is part of this uh, lawsuit that's going on. Uh, and then we removed, then the state removed the kids. Uh and which, again, we're talking about the Fourth Amendment. You have a right not to have your kids seized. Uh, and they have a right. They have a right not to be seized. Yes. And, and and then there's the First Amendment, the free association. That means the right to associate with your family. There's the Fourteenth Amendment of due process. And and these aren't new concepts, Senator Clark. They they know this. These these rights have been clearly established since the eighties. 
chops will be granted. So the rights to have children and bring them up as you see fit, you know, is a fundamental liberty interest. And, and they, they ignore that. And well, we're, we're it's about still doing it. it's about the kids, Joe. We're we're worried about the kids. <laughs> it's about and seriously, we are we do. There are people who abuse kids, and they right. see it every day. And uh, and it is and sometimes they don't do anything about it. And sometimes least, it's the other way. You're correct. Yeah, you know, um, the girl up in Van Buren, um, her name escapes me now, and I can't believe that the crimes against children investigator pled guilty to. Fabricating evidence, he committed perjury in forty-three different cases. Wow. Okay, and and, if, and and think about it; those are families that have been torn apart. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, uh, and they're trying trying to be reunified. Now, the Stanley case, um, Kathy Finnegan, she perjured herself. She fabricated evidence. So did Mike Wright and Terry Threadgill. They were granted immunity by the federal Eighth Circuit. I mean, by our by our Western District. I'm sorry. And we can't appeal that yet. They said, based on a 1979 case, that child care workers and police officers are not acting under color of law when they testify. Therefore, they're not liable if they commit perjury. And You're not liable if you commit perjury. Right. You can't sue them. Even if they commit perjury and fabricate evidence to take your kids away, they are still immune. How about the doctor from UAMS? Oh, everybody's immune, even if they commit perjury. So, because, you know, remember, I was sitting there when the doctor from UAMS testified in the appeal. Right. Can't sue her for that. And there's no prosecutor that's going to charge him. You know that. Um, Major Staten told you that he couldn't recall a single incident ever of anybody referring to the prosecution a false report of child abuse. I was appalled, appalled sitting in that hearing when, uh, because I wouldn't have known, uh, when the UAMS doctor uh, expert witness testified that this chemical, what was it, MMS, right? that they were accused MMS. of poisoning their kids with, that uh, that it, she testified that it was illegal, uh, that this chemical was illegal. And then I remember on cross-examination, you asked her, illegal where? Uh, and my memory is that she kind of acted like she didn't know what you were talking about, and then you said, was well, it illegal in the United States? And she said, no, it's illegal in Canada. And, and, wow. and I, I remember the judge, my memory is of the judge looking at her and then him asking her a couple of questions like, why are you testifying about Canada? But, I mean, it was a it was a deliberate attempt to deceive the judge by the state, uh, right? I mean, uh, did, I, did sure. I read that wrong? That's their trade. Uh, I, I got a tile from Sean McMillan, who's the first ever successful at, at holding CPS accountable. That's in Orange County. In the Ninth Circuit, and this tile says, "quote." And this is what they teach. This this was training for caseworkers and investigators. This this PowerPoint tile said, "If lawyers own the law, caseworkers own the facts." Okay. So why so why wasn't this medical professional allegedly medical professional? Why wasn't she immediately arrested and and, and held in contempt of court and and gone to jail for it? Oh, we'll come back because to that. I, because that, I'm not the attorney general. <laughs> That would be a great place to start when we come back from this break. And we're back, and we were talking about the Stanley case, and uh, it seems like Paul had a really interesting question just as we were headed out. But so, we, I guess what, what it was, was what is the – so you have a the, the doctor, I guess, was positively yeah, yeah, Dr. Teresa Escobel, she was on the child at risk team. She's a child, she's a pediatric 
child abuse specialist. Okay. Um, you know, and the problem with, with those people is, you know, you find what you look for without child abuse, their specialty gone. The the boards that certify things like shaken baby syndrome will right. ignore science. Shaken baby syndrome is junk. We've sent mothers and fathers to prison for life. Right. Nothing. I defended one last year, right up until the night we were set for trial. We had to get a pro bono expert because the judge would not give us money for attorney's fees wow. because she hired a because she hired a lawyer for twenty five hundred bucks, and that wasn't me. Hmm. I worked for two years on her DHS cases, pro bono, and I did her class Y felony criminal trial facing ten to forty to life pro wow. bono. I needed a little bit of help from somebody, so I convinced Reggie Coke, uh, another real lawyer to come on a case that should have been $50,000 for $2,500. And based on that, the judge said, we're the state's not going to provide the money for an expert. However, we've got Dr. Rachel Crayon-Peel, um, a monster, and by monster, I mean highly respected in her field, child abuse specialist that's going to testify on behalf of Arkansas Children's Hospital. So we were lucky enough to get a, an expert that would come down from Michigan hmm. for free. And we scraped up enough money for tickets and a hotel room and and he was on his way, and they wanted to continue it on Friday, and the judge denied it, so they know it. After dragging this woman through the ringer and making her lose her kids for years, mm. and, and the trauma when you're facing 10 to 40 to life, right? You know, well, and the, just just the the fact that you could you can you can convince someone to accept a plea deal for almost anything when you're challenge when you're threatening them with something like that. That's yeah. the norm, and and if she hadn't, and I'm not saying this. Well, I am saying this. If she hadn't found me, she probably would have taken the deal. But yeah. she she wore me out. I didn't. I couldn't take the case. And she came to every single joint performance review committee hearing and sat there with her parents and waited and, and caught me or Senator Clark or anybody mm-hmm. that would listen to her tell her story. She did it time after time. <sighs> but, but but back to this this so called medical professional who testified. And just rather clearly perjured herself in court. She was not punished in any way. Why, why wasn't she held in contempt well, of court and sent to jail right away? Um, well, the way it finished under my cross examination, she told the truth. So <laughs> the way that the way that, listen the way the perjury statute is written, that it's not a crime if if before the, the proceeding in which the false testimony was given, if it's rectified before the end of that proceeding, it wasn't a crime. But so mis- trying to mislead a judge is not a crime other than criminal contempt. So, yeah, but she should have. If I'd have been, if I'd have been the judge, there'd have been more than a couple of questions to that. But the problem is the whole case was misled. Everybody was misled. They knew they messed up, and instead of admitting it, they doubled down, created more lies, and, and they're still dug in. They just filed another motion now for judgment on the pleadings, asking the case to be dismissed against Finnegan again. So, Senator Clark, when that's denied, they'll take another interlocutory appeal, which will set, they've asked to stay discovery again. You know, it's been 13 months. I haven't been able to take a deposition or, or gather any evidence. And my client is 77 years old, and they're trying to make it so there's three interlocutory appeals in four years before I can see the jury in the standing case. So, that's what the government attorneys do. So they're going yeah. to try to outlive him. And we have Joe Turkwell <laughs> on the line. And Joe, huh. what is a? Uh, I've asked you this before, but uh, not on there. What is an interlocutory appeal? Inter- interlocutory appeal is an early appeal in a case, and that's only available to the government. 
in other words, in these preliminary motions, if the government loses, they get to take an appeal right now to stop the whole process. We lost several motions. One of them, or uh, several causes, one of them, I tried to sue her for committing perjury and falsi- in falsifying evidence, and, and she was dismissed on immunity for that. So I don't, the plaintiff doesn't get to appeal those adverse decisions in the beginning of the case. So why, is it, why wasn't she prosecuted? Why wasn't, why wasn't she prosecuted? I mean, why should you have to sue her? Why wasn't she prosecuted and arrested for it? Because she's a member of the Arkansas State Police. <laughs> well, the, uh, they believe her. Listen, time and time again, they keep putting her on my cases, okay? I, I said she's incompetent. I, I overturned 21 out of 21 true findings, okay? So qualified immunity protects all but the clearly incompetent or those that knowingly violate the law. And my point with Kathy Finnegan is she was zero for 21, okay? <laughs> so it, it, I, think it's, I think it's clear. It's common sense. She cannot be both competent and following the law. <laughs> she got it wrong 21 out of 21 times. So, and, and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with me on that. Once, so, once they circle the wagons, and we're back on the air with Joe Churchwell, attorney, and uh, I dare say, children and family activists uh, that I am extremely thankful for, and R.D. Hopper, Paul Cowart, the Power Panel. We've been talking about the Stanley case. We really want to talk about uh, uh, child welfare in general. And uh, although uh, we uh, continue to be specific, if I don't trip over my tongue. Uh, Joe, we were talking about the, the doctor from UAMS that said that MMS was illegal, which I was appalled, should have been appalled. Uh, and it was in a private, you know, it was in a secret hearing. It wasn't secret. You knew about it, and the Stanleys knew about it, and DHS knew about it, but in a building that doesn't have a number on it, <laughs> that I, as a, a state oh, senator... And it, yeah, and it's a closed proceeding. If if Judge Austin would have told you to leave, you would have had to leave. I had to get special permission to be there yeah. and to observe this and to observe that we had a state agency actually put on an expert witness who was trying to deceive the judge. Uh, then I couldn't tell anybody about it. I mean, the unique thing now is that we're talking about it. Uh, but I couldn't go back then and tell uh, tell what I had said. Well, well, you weren't supposed to. And Judge Austin told you that. And he said, but, you know, um, you remember, he said, I'm just an ALJ. I don't know what I would do if you did. Well, he yeah, also he's right. He said when it was done, I could when the case was done, I could do anything I wanted to do. Uh, and the case is done. Right. So right, you you could have said anything you wanted to at any time because we waived confidentiality and we are the subject. And the statute reads that that subsequent disclosure, nothing in the act prevents that by a subject of the investigation. And how family and his children clearly are are defined as the subject. So you know, throughout the entire process, they take laws and they twist them and they misread them and they misrepresent them to suit their purposes. And then the laws that they don't want to follow, they just ignore it. The law you wrote that said you must make immediate efforts to investigate and place children with relatives in the least, they just ignored it in this case up in Fort Smith. And they continue to ignore it. And now the judge stopped me from taking a deposition of the caseworker so that I can prove that they didn't follow the law or the court's orders. So Joe, I can't I can't get discovery in the federal courts. I can't get discovery in the state courts. You can't sue the state and state courts. You can't sue the state for money damage in the federal courts. Well, so, and well, and people <laughs> a lot of this people don't understand, and I wouldn't understand if I wasn't involved in it. 
And of course, this is way more than the Stanley case. And it, and I have to stop and say, lots of wonderful people in the in DCFS that do a great job. Uh, and but when you run, and there's lots of judges who do a great job. But you run into the problems. It's a real problem. And the, you know, I was just visiting. We could talk about all kinds of cases, but I was visiting with the, an attorney in the legislature who was telling me about. Uh, a parent that he represented uh he was a fan of the work that we've been doing a, a dad that he represented who had lost his child and if i could remember the term he used you would know exactly you could tell us what it was but he hadn't it, he wasn't accused of abuse he wasn't accused of neglect it was possible da- in danger uh, I, I don't well, know what risk of harm risk of harm he was charged with risk right. of harm and the risk of harm <laughs> was that a brother a a half brother had molested a child and his mother, the, both of their mother, had not told anyone about it. So they made a true finding against her uh, for not telling anyone what his brother had done. And he he lived with his mother. So the risk of harm was that he lived with his mother who had never abused a child, who had never neglected a child, but had failed to report her other son, who did not live in the house. They took his They took the child. And for 10 months, he did everything he was supposed to do, uh, but at nine months or 10 months, lost his job, uh, uh, failed a drug okay, test you know why? for marijuana. You know why he lost his job? Probably is because the case plan that they devise that's required for reunification of the family is so burdensome that if you took all of what they call services, and really they're not services, they're uh Parenting classes, you know, they made Hal and Michelle Stanley go to parenting classes to learn how to change a diaper when they home birthed 10 children wow. and homeschooled 10 children, made them go to these classes. And, and that's so their stakeholders can get paid. All of this billions in Medicaid goes out to the stakeholders. I, I don't call it stakeholders. I call it their, their leeches. They what? need children in care to make their money. And that's really what this is all about. Well, what people need to know, though, is this this man who had never abused his child, was never accused of abusing his child, never accused of neglecting his child, lost his child, did did everything they asked him to for 10 months, lost his job, failed a drug test for marijuana, and uh, hit termination two months later and lost his lost his daughter forever. Right. And people, if we right. didn't, if not for the privacy laws, people would be throwing a fit if they knew this could happen to them because they don't know until it happens to a member of their family. And these people right, are. And I, went, and I went astray. And what I was trying to say by that is I'm sure he needed something to call, calm his nerves or the anxiety from the <laughs> trauma that he's been put through in his family. Because, listen, they say you have to go to these uh, parenting without violence classes. And then you have to go to these anger management classes. And then you have to go parenting with love classes. And then you have to see a counselor. And then you have to go get a psychological evaluation by one of our doctors right in the middle of the most traumatic situation in your entire life so we can use that against you. And And often the classes aren't available. Right. And then you have to pay child support. The guy up in Fort Smith was paying $1,000 a month the minute they snatched the kids. To the state. To the state. We found out in the last hearing. They take your child and you have to pay them child support. That's right. And Hmm. it's sitting in a trust fund. They hadn't used any of it. It's sitting in a trust fund right now. And that dad had to pay $10,000 to the court reporter and the circuit clerk to get the records so I could write the appeal. I didn't get paid to do the appeal. He had to spend all his money to pay the courts to get the materials for me to do the appeal. Mm. Okay, so that breaks people down. 
you know, I'm surprised the guy didn't go crawl in a bottle of whiskey. So, so how did how did where did all these rules come from about this? Did this come from the, U, the Arkansas Supreme Court? Or is this is this statutory law? Or what, how did this this mess of a system it started? Started with term with limits. Well, it started. <laughs> I, I want to come back on and talk about those too, because when we lose you, all the work that you did that they're ignoring now, we're not going to be able to hold them accountable. <laughs> but, but that Hillary Clinton passed federal legislation uh, called the American Families Safe Act, and and what that said is we have these children that have been taken out of homes um, and placed in in foster care, and they've been here for a long time. We need permanency. So these kids need to be in a family. So we can't let these cases drag on forever and let these parents, you know, waste time. So we're going to give federal incentives to the state to adopt, to adopt these children. And if, you, and if you adopt out a certain number of children in a certain amount of time, you get a certain amount of money. Hmm. And, and they, they look you in the eye and say There's no, there is no incentive. federal incentive to adopt children. But hmm. guess what the plan is called? Under Title IV and in 4D, the adoption incentive. <laughs> that's, that's what. What is called? Okay, so and, and that's the world that Senator Clark was describing when he witnessed a doctor deliberately try to mislead a judge. And Joe, I and, forget people don't know. I was with a friend Saturday. We were uh, taking off uh, a little bit and driving up into North Arkansas to see a waterfall, and. And this was a close friend, and I, Jan and I were telling him about some of these cases. And I didn't realize, I didn't know there was anybody around me that I hadn't told about some of these cases. And after a little while, he said, can we please talk about something else? I am really becoming depressed. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, we've cried with so many people uh, that if there is any way to get this word out to people across the state of what's really happening uh, – and which brings me to, you know, what are the top three, uh, top three things you think that we need to change in the child welfare system? First one, the governor, <laughs> to begin with, because every one of these agencies, our state agencies, the directors serve at his pleasure. And I know, Alan, you keep saying that there are good people in the department, and there are good people. There in the are. But the problem is, you told them what happened. The Vincent report told them what happened. The Hornby Zeller report told them what happened. I proved time and time again in court what's happening, and what do they say? No, it's not happening. We're not. I agree, you know, Joe. We're not moving fast enough. Uh, I agree with you on that. But, but here's the, here's you the also know the government has the governor has been helpful in, in getting some of this changed. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen that. Here's what I do know. I do know that not one person was ever fired in DCFS that held a position of power. We know that. that well, no, Cecil Blucher resigned, but she wasn't fired. She, hmm. right? She was. Nobody hmm. has has been held accountable for anything. Not even Clarence Garrison, who raped those children. DCFS sent thirty five children to his home. They told DCFS and the police that they were being raped. They called them liars. Okay, <laughs> you know he knows about that. He was on a radio show not long ago and acted like he didn't know a thing about it. So well, they, they cover up the wrong. And so they stop doing that. Sometimes, Joe, and again, and, and in time, what you said could 
could be true. But sometimes, like, you know, there were people carrying on for months that no one was doing anything about the Stanley case when I was working like a dog behind the scenes doing something about the Stanley case. So sometimes there are it things. It wasn't your job. The problem yeah. is Cecile Blucher and Major Ron Satan should have been doing their job instead of telling you to go take a hike. But I'm just saying that there may be things going on that, that you and even I don't know about. Uh, yeah. Just sell that to somebody else. But keep they the pressure on. And it makes you mad. And it makes you mad when they tell you that, doesn't it, Senator? If yes. you only knew, right? I, 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 just, I know. Just, just trust us. Oh, so let's move to number, yeah. what's the number two thing we need to do? <laughs> we need to stop DCFS doing investigations. The Department of Human Services needs to become the Department of Humane Services and provide services. You cannot trust somebody that's walking up your sidewalk when you know they're going to investigate and make a true finding. So God help me for saying this, and I know somebody, if you're not sitting, Santa Clark, sit down, but I think the Arkansas State Police needs to take over all of the investigations. <laughs> Please don't say that. Ar- no, you no, know listen, how I feel and about they, that. And they need, no, I know you do, but I'd here's agree. why. And, here, and we'll make them do it right. We'll make them subject to the Fourth Amendment, we'll make them subject to probable cause, and we'll abolish an anonymous hotline and make them do it right. Well, and then we'll have caseworkers helping families, not investigating them, and lying about them on the stand. Where we agree, and this, by the way, you should be encouraged, this has come out in our Child Welfare Legislative Oversight Committee hearings, and did we just lose Joe? I think we did. Uh, the uh, In our Child Welfare Legislative Oversight Committee hearings, uh, one of the things we've come that we've been told is that when the same person is investigating, who's also your caseworker, mm-hmm. it, it's you know we have a safety in that in in our police system. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's take a break here, uh, and we'll bring Joe back on here in just a moment. And we're back with Joe Churchwell, and uh, Joe, we were talking about uh, again about child welfare. The the number, the number two thing that I think needed yeah, to change. Yeah, the number two thing that you think right. needs to change. All, all investigations need to be conducted by the Arkansas State Police Crimes Against Children Division. They need to be recognized as a law enforcement investigative body, and they need to be subject to the, to the Fourth Amendment, uh, the warrants clause. It's like simple. every other government official should be subject to, in, in spite of what their, confu- their confusion about civil versus criminal. Correct. But, you know, a lot of that's the legislature's fault. You know, they passed laws that were given to them by child welfare and and stakeholders to make this easy. There are no roadblocks for them. And that's the only way it's efficient. See, I'm a roadblock when I walk into a courtroom because they know it's not going to be done in 15 minutes. And they know I'm going to make a record. And they know I'm going to object. And they know I'm going to call them out for lying. And they might be there till midnight. You know, they don't like that. They don't like anything that slows down progress. And during one of the JPR hearings, you'll remember this, Senator Clark, I said they need to have a Miranda-type warning. uh, And in fact, I I helped draft some legislation that never made it out of committee. So that when those caseworkers walk up to a door and say, we've received uh, an allegation of abuse and we're here to conduct an investigation, they need to say, however, we don't have a right to come in without a warrant. And you have a right not to let us in. And you have a right not to see the children because that's the law under the constitution as opposed to them coming in coming in and intimidating parents and telling them you know if you don't let us come in we're we're gonna probably gonna take your children which is basically terroristic threatening i'm gonna stand right here and call the police on my phone right here and they're gonna come take kids that's what they do and they they tell them they don't tell them 
that they have to have a warrant, but they don't tell them they have a right to refuse. They tell them the opposite. We have an absolute right under the law to come in. You have to let us in. So I said, that's not true. And of course, I'm having to litigate it in federal court because our state still believes that they have the right to do that. Um, if, if anybody else did that, you could actually push them off your porch. <laughs> yeah, sure you could. But Senator uh, Missy Irvin stopped me and said, but uh, in regard to my suggestion or demand that there be a Miranda top warning for parents, she said, why would we want to do anything to impede an investigation? You know, and, and I thought, okay, let me think about that for a minute. But my, I, I answered the question. The question, I said, why would any legitimate government not want its people to know what its rights are? And I think she folded up her notebook and left. Right. Well, but, well, at the, yeah, at, the yeah. at the very least, keep them from lying to people about their rights. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, it is. Well, but that impedes the investigation. We that have another We have another school of thought. We have folks who assume everyone is guilty, <laughs> and they're good people. But until it's you that they're assuming is guilty, and you know, until it's you that they've got the the pitchforks and the torches. I think, after. That's, pretty, I think that's pretty generous of you to say they're good people. But if they well, assume you're they, guilty, they mean well. Uh, but they, <laughs> well, but they again, they assume that everybody's guilty and that we've got to go investigate innocent. everything. And DCFS knows that we're casting too too wide a net. That we're we're doing too many investigations and we're we're harassing too many people. And when you're doing that, you better respect the guy who stands on his porch. And says you can't come in my house, and you can invest. You can talk to my kids, but after I talk to my lawyer and with my lawyer and me present, uh, then we'll talk about it. Otherwise, get off my porch. And but however, however, there are state laws that say the opposite. There's a state law that says if you're the alleged offender, and that's always the parent, then you then you're forbidden from being present and any of your representatives. So if I represent an alleged offender, neither he nor I by statute, are allowed to be there during the investigation or interrogation of the child. Mm. They law prohibits that, and it's unconstitutional. There's no question. And like I said, I've challenged you in a case that hasn't been heard yet. I'm now challenging uh-huh. sovereign immunity. So what's, uh, no, so what's number three? <laughs> um, Misha Martin's got to go. I mean, we oh, need a new division of children. Effect. No, I'm sorry. Tell me one thing that she's done right. I'm uh, in those courts every single day, and her people are doing the same thing they were doing three years ago when we started working on this. Well, and I've asked her for help personally, and she does not do it. I mean, she's talking the talk. Sorry. I know, I know we differ there, but she's she's done a lot of good. I don't have time to go into it uh, on the air right now, but she's done a lot of good. Okay, who, who, let me ask you this. She's the director of the Division of Children and Family Services. Yes. You and I have uncovered wrongdoing by people, people that take kids. People, you and I have said, look at what's happening in the division. You tell me, has even one of those people been fired that you're aware of? I, is, that, is that a fair question? I think probably so. I think probably a fair you question. Probably so. And I think well, somebody probably has been fired, but you know we don't make publicize that a lot well that's the kind of stuff that should be publicized because when they're terrorizing families and violating the constitution the people should know that those people are not being protected the problem is kathy finnegan you know what she did they know what she did she only retired last week they promoted her they gave her a pay raise after what she did to the stanley family she told you heard two different people testify she said i don't care if i have evidence if i think they're guilty i'll make a true finding and they can just appeal it that's the way she did business. And that's now, not the judge, only time we've heard that. Right. And Judge Wallman at the Eighth Circuit in St. Louis 
brought that up, even though that's not an issue of appeal. And I think that's huge. They're interested in this. He said, perhaps people like that shouldn't be in any position of government, any position. Yet what do we do? We, we, we protect them. They put her on three cases after I sued her. And I said, look, I'm forbidden from doing any questioning of her by a federal court because there's a stay on discovery. And you guys keep putting her on, on my cases. Well, you just don't have to. You don't have to ask those questions. And I said, "Well, actually, that's how to do. That's my job, you know." And and I do it every time she makes a true finding. Ask her. She doesn't like it, but that's what I do. And <laughs> and they kept putting her on the case. Okay, we're gonna have to so, wrap it up, um, Joe. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, you did great. You keep working on that you, end, and I'll you, keep you I'll keep working on the legislative end. <laughs> Don't forget, you started this. You called me three years ago. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> keep uh, up the good work. Hey, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'll see you soon. All right, thanks. <laughs> What's his name again? Joe, Joe Churchwell. And we are back. And uh, if you're just tuning in or been listening the last couple of hours and wondering who in the world this guy is, that's not Dave Ellswick, because uh, I haven't. I've been talking about my guest names, but I haven't mentioned that this is State Center Alan Clark uh, filling in for Dave Ellswick today, which shows that uh, a little. Uh, shortage of judgment on his part uh, but uh, this hour uh, we have the bible guys who are uh, scott stewart and steve hess who are a lot more familiar uh, with this than i am i just appear once in a while and they're here every week and uh, dave did tell me to try to straighten them out while i was here today oh but my goodness no, no i'm just just joking i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> i wouldn't either and uh, we we had a little short discussion on theology, a very brief discussion, huh. and we're on the same page on some very important stuff. So, excellent. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah, a good, that's a good way to start. <laughs> so, uh, but no, and I think uh, we've got a caller on the line already. Are y'all ready to go to a caller? Yes, sure. sir. Okay, let's see if I can handle John and Conway. John, can you hear us? Yeah. How are you guys? Doing great. Good. What's up, John? Pretty good. Hey, Steve. Uh, I uh, I talked to Steve already about this question. I wanted to ask it on the radio so mm-hmm. people can hear it too. And I really want to uh, get an answer from Pastor Scott to get that perspective from you. And my question was, is it possible for a saint to sin no more and walk completely in Jesus' spirit, like have full revelation of the Word? Okay. That's a big question, bro. Uh, Steve, uh, why don't you tell us what your answer was originally when you gave it to him? Um, well, let's see. We, I think it took me about an hour to get to the points of it. Uh-huh. That's um, about typical. Most, most of the – and this is a great question and a good question to uh, really talk about because a lot of people take the the short answer out, and that is, well, I'm a sinner anyway, and there's nothing really I can do about it. That's why I have Jesus. That's the short answer, and that's what most people's cop-out answer is. And I say that as a cop-out answer because – that means they don't want to take accountability for their actions. Uh, does it mean that we can be absolutely perfect and sinless? Um, we will have moments and weakness of the flesh where we can fall short, but I believe the goal in the Bible states this, I think, pretty clearly in several places, that we are to obtain and seek and strive for righteousness and holiness, which means to walk a sinless life out. He told the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Uh, and is it possible? Um it should be obtainable, but will it likely happen? No, because of the flesh that we walk in, because we walk in Adam's flesh, which has um, sin, but 
there should be a level where as we walk in our life, those moments of sinfulness, if you will, or falling short should become fewer and fewer and further apart. Uh, but if we could walk in absolute perfection, then we really wouldn't have had a need for him to come and die for us. But he did come and teach us that there should be a level in which we should be able to attain as, as close to perfection as one can get in this flesh and in this body. So I wouldn't say that we could absolutely come completely sinless, but we should, it should get to the place where, where sin – and I also and also when we talked about this, I, dis- I said you have to define sin because mm-hmm. I said you also um, – are you talking about just the acts themselves or are we talking about our thought? Because once you say to God, I want to get to the place of holiness, I want to get into the inner chamber, I want to get to that real cl- close place that the high priest went to, then he's going to say, okay, well, that's nice that you didn't hit your brother – but you know what? You meditated on how angry you were with him for just a little bit, and guess what? You fell short and sinned. So you can get to that place where you, your your spirit and the spirit of God will have you overcome those things. Um, but to be absolutely sinless would be completely difficult. That's yeah, and I think that we find we find Jesus actually giving us his. Um, he's he's telling us that he's actually that the expectation is that we would go and sin no more. And he, by the Holy Spirit, he empowers empowers us to live a life that is um, that we can live a holy life. And the really, I think sometimes we confuse what holy is, and mm. sometimes we think holy is a sinless life. But the word holy means a set apart life, a sanctified, set apart life. So. The idea of something being holy uh, does not mean uh, without flaw, but it means set apart for, for the work of God. So, um, and and also, honestly, John, it's a very good question. But if we just look at the at the at the, uh, the people who wrote the Bible, um, and we can see that they were people who who fell short. Um, so I do I do not believe that we will be able to live a sinless life, but I do believe that we can um, no longer live as sinners. And what I mean by that is this. Um, if I play golf, um, you know, 10 times in my entire life, I would not call myself a golfer. I might say I have golfed a few times, but I'm not a golfer. If I've gone fishing 10 times in my entire life, I'm not really a fisherman, but I have fished. Um, you can fall short, you know, from time to time and you have sinned, but does that make you a habitual sinner? Uh, I think the answer to that question would be no. So I think we can live a life where we're not habitual or habitually sinners all the time, uh, but that does not mean that we will not have moments where we do fall uh, short. The power of the Holy Ghost is there to help us to walk out the law of God and to live above and not live um, beneath. And so that, That's actually where grace comes in. That's where the misunderstanding about grace is. The gra- Most of the time we just think grace is, well, I'm saved by grace, therefore I'm kind of free to do whatever I want, and that's really not Mm -hmm. the idea behind grace. Grace is there for when you are falling short of striving for that place of holiness. That's where grace slips in. Yeah. Does that make sense to you, John? Yeah, uh, it does. I mean... You don't sound very happy about the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it challenges my my thinking a bit. Yeah. uh, You know, I mean, I'm definitely uh, humble, and I respect you guys. But I don't know. I guess I just got to pray about it. I just, I, I don't know. I, just, I guess I just feel like it is possible. But I don't, hey, when you, I respect you guys. So. Yeah, well, listen, I think that that is, I mean, the Lord's expectation. When the Bible says, be ye holy, even as I am holy, it gives us the expectation. And I don't believe that God tells us to do something and then withholds the ability from us to do what he told us to do. 
So I guess in the ultimate, is it possible? I guess there yes. is always that that possibility. Yes. Have I ever known anyone to achieve that? The answer is no. And I've been walking this life for a long time. Do we have anybody in Scripture who was able to achieve that other than Jesus? The answer to that question is no. So, um, uh, so. I think in the the pure sense of the question, there would be that yes element at the very top of it. You know, there's a verse that says that we are. It tells us to be perfect, mm-hmm. and if we're to be perfect, that means that's going to be uh, sinless. Uh, so, um, so yes, at the end of the day, uh, the ultimate of ultimates would be yes. But I've never met anyone who's actually att- attained to that. And that's a better way to answer the question, and and that is, it should be possible. Um, but is it likely? Because if it wasn't possible, then when God gave us the commandments then it would basically be have been in vain. If it was not possible for us to walk all of those out, um, then then he basically he was just tricking us, mm-hmm, going, well, right. here's all the commandments, but I'm just kidding, you can't really do it. So yes, in the purest sense of the question, we should be able to walk a sinless life. However, we pretty much know that we all fall short, even yeah. though we may desire to walk a holy life. And that's where the, thing, the beautiful thing about grace is, John, because if you don't hold on to that grace thing, what's going to happen is you're going to set yourself a goal you're going to fall short of it, and then you're going to beat yourself every day. Yep. You okay? I think it's awesome to have to have that grace, but uh, I guess the one thing that keeps sitting in my mind is that I I think that the reason why we haven't seen that is maybe people didn't believe they could do it. No. I think that's where it starts. If you believe you can walk to it, that's the first step. You, you know, you got a great point there because the word says you know, to, you know that we can do all things through Christ. It tells us that if we um, that uh, there's nothing impossible for those that believe. So you're absolutely right. Faith is the beginning point to everything that we do uh, in God. And maybe we need to raise our uh, expectation, our faith level up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Good man, John. Thanks, brother. Keep pushing. Thanks, Keep pushing. John. And speaking of perfection. Uh, what I did not do is say that the number that you can call into the show is 501-823-0965 to talk to the Bible guys. And uh, that was a, a great discussion. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, I'm reminded I've got a nephew that works in prison ministry. All right. And uh, he often has some of the folks that he ministers to telling him that uh, – stressing that it's not possible mm-hmm. to live a holy life. And he says, you're in prison. How's that worked out for you? Yeah, right. <laughs> so much of our human effort just gets us absolutely nowhere. So grace is a beautiful a beautiful thing, unfortunately. Okay, we've got another caller. God is able. Amen. Uh, it's when we fail, it's us that That's fails. That's right. Uh, and thank God for grace. Amen. Melbourne Little Rock, are you there? Hey, I am. Hi there. Hey, Melba. Um Hey, I have a question that's just concerning in Matthew uh, 17, uh, when they're going to Capernaum and they were these, uh, those that received the tribute asked Peter, has his master, has he paid his tribute? And he said yes, and then God sort of called him out. And was he asking him... Um, like, um, I mean, this was a miracle. I suppose he went, of course it was, he went and got the coins out of the fish's mouth. Sure. But was, was he saying, I mean, what was the tribute for? Well, the the uh, the tribute was uh, this was being collected by um, you know remember there were there were tax collectors these were Jewish people typically uh-huh. who were working for the Roman Empire and uh, yeah and the, uh, the there was taxes levied on all people just as their taxes le- levied uh, today uh, and so there was a tax payable um, which is a tax obviously that Jesus um, 
uh, owed. Actually, the scripture says to pay the tax. Jesus says, go and get the gold coin and pay the tax for me and for you. So there was a is big pardon. Was it just for, was it just for Rome? Uh, no, this one, it's actually listed as the temple the tax. Temple, there was also a temple tax, that's right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, it's somewhere in there he is alluding to where he says, um, so that we don't offend them, notwithstanding unless we should offend them. Before that was he saying, you know, we are doing this for the temple, even though, you know, I'm the temple, or the way it's, he just sort of alluding to the way it was going to change. Also, um, was this miracle for <laughs> was it for Peter? I mean, I, I thought they caught fish with nets then, not a hook, but mm-hmm. he goes and tells him to get that, and it happens to be the exact amount they need. Mm-hmm. So this miracle there, did it doesn't allude to anybody else witnessing this. Uh, did he go and get it right then, or just, I know just reading this, it doesn't tell anything about that, but it in the story it's him and Peter, and that's it so was it to what i mean i know all the miracles are for us to read and gain strength from but as far as that right there he could have he could have said you know it's in your pocket you know we we have Mm -hmm. it here but he sent him to go and get it he sent him off to get it right Um, yes peter was a fisherman so i'm gonna hang up and i would y'all just talk about that sure thank you melba um yeah, this this really was um, for Peter because obviously Jesus could – I mean he could have just made it disappear. Uh, this was not for him. Uh, you know, he created the whole world with his with his words. Uh, so this was nothing that Jesus was um, – he didn't um, he didn't need. If you think about it, Peter did all the actual um, work. Jesus did the super part. Peter did the natural part. Those two things came together and produced the supernatural. Uh, so, yes, it was definitely uh, for Peter to be able to experience and just reconfirm uh, the Messiahship of Yeshua, of Jesus. Um, but um, the other question, what was that, to Steve? Do you wanted to jump in? Well, I was just looking at, at, the, at the point that I think he's trying to make here is um, when he's asking who are they taking this stuff from, either from sons or strangers, um, and he said that the, they, they're taking it from the strangers is what Peter says. And he said, then you Jesus said that the sons are free, and and I think there's probably something he's trying to teach him there about where we're at in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're trying to, because if this is a temple tax, um, this is the Jewish people who are trying to take or taking the tax, not necessarily the Romans here. Uh, and, and I think to, he's trying to make the point there that he's part that we're part of the um, part of the king that we're now, even though we're free, nevertheless, in order not to offend, let's just go ahead and do what they ask to do. Yeah. And you have to remember that the ones that were collecting this would have been uh, the Sadducees who were running the temple, and they That's were right. the best of people. Okay, we're going to have to go to a break, and we've got a caller holding on the line when we come back. So, caller, we know you're there, and uh, here we go. This is Alan Clark going for Dave Ellswick. I'm here with the Bible guys. Uh, the number here, if you want to uh, got a question for uh, Scott and Steve, is 501-823-0965. And we've got Dana from Conway's been holding through the break. Dana, you're on the air. Hello. Hey. Dana. Hi, I'm sorry, guys. I'm having a hard time hearing on my phone, hearing you guys. Quick question for you. Um, I pray over my family every morning before I leave my home or prayer protection. And throughout the day, I also say no weapon formed against any of my family or myself shall prosper in Jesus' name. And mm-hmm. I plead the blood of Jesus over them. 
And somebody had told me, a preacher or somebody, that no weapon formed against me actually means it's something the devil already kind of knows what your weaknesses are or whatever, and that's what you're praying against. Does that make Mm. sense? I'm I'm not. I'm going to hang up and listen because I can't hear you guys at all. Okay. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you very much for your uh, call, Dana. Um, The verse of scripture referring to um, it's an Old Testament uh, quotation. I don't recall exactly the um, uh, place it comes out of, but uh, um, it's in reference to um, to the nation of Israel in particular. And it mentioned it says that every tongue that rises up against you, you shall condemn, and every weapon formed against you. It says every weapon formed against you shall not prosper, and every tongue that rises up against you shall you shall uh, condemn. and although uh, the devil will know some of your weaknesses, uh, I do not believe that that verse is, is implying uh, anything like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I believe that it's, imp- it's saying exactly what it exactly what it means. That schemes that are devised against you, not just by the enemy, but by um, by people or situations or circumstances um, that you're praying against those things. So I would say your prayers over your kids, your prayers over your family, are directed in the in the right way. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what this other person was meaning when they said that, but I don't believe that that particular verse of Scripture uh, would be applied in that particular um, manner. I don't remember ever seeing that when I've read that verse before. No, I don't, no. No. So thank you very much for your call there, Dana. Hopefully that uh, helped you out. We do want to go back. I'm sorry. Uh, looks like we've got another call here. Uh, Tony from Cabot. Tony, you're on the air. Yeah, I've got a question in regards to uh, holidays. Because I know when Christianity was spreading, uh, some of the so-called pagan holidays, like uh, the god Esther, mm-hmm. formed into Easter. Yep. And then Christmas was the winter sol- solace. Solstice, And that yeah. kind of got incorporate, incorporated also within Christianity. So, And it's ingrained into our uh, society now, if you will. And I was curious if it's bad to celebrate these holidays, Easter and Christmas and so forth, even though they're considered pagan holidays. Okay. It was a good question. Thank you very much. Um, do you want to hang on the line or do you want to hang up and listen to what we're saying? He's gone. He's gone. Okay. All right. Um, How much I'll, time we do we have yeah, before right. the break? Uh, I'll go ahead and hit, uh, I'll hit <laughs> the, question. Hit the uh, Easter. We only have about a minute and a half. We'll probably have to pick up the others on the other side. But uh, uh, really quickly, uh, at my church, the church I pastor, um, Agape Church over here in uh, Little Rock, um, uh, we do not celebrate Easter. Um, it is it is thoroughly pagan. It comes from the uh, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. Um, her symbol was the uh, the egg. Uh, the reason why the egg was dyed is because they dipped the uh, the eggs in the blood of uh, sacrificed babies on the altar to Ishtar. Jesus never celebrated Easter. He celebrated Passover. And because he celebrated Passover, he commanded us. He even told his disciples at the Passover meal, he said, we will celebrate this feast together in my Father's kingdom. So one day we'll be celebrating Passover in um, in heaven. There's actually a lot I could say about this. I mean, I, I've, I've taught on this particular thing. I, I, I'll teach for several hours on this one particular uh, topic, and I'd like to really kind of delve into that. I know we've got a, a break coming up here. Uh, but uh, I, for us, we don't celebrate. 15 seconds. I'll pick this up on the other side of the break. <laughs> I have a feeling because I'm just going to get myself into some weeds here I can't get myself out of. Right, not in 15 seconds. No, so. not in 15 seconds, no. <laughs> well, we will um, – uh, it's a very interesting subject, and I, I like what you were saying about it. And We will be right back to it. And here we are back. You're stuck again today with State Center Alan Clark. Uh, but <laughs> you get you, you have the uh, privilege of having Scott Stewart and Steve Hess, the Bible guys, at 501-823-0965. 
And uh, guys, I know there were some things. Don't have a caller right now, but some things that uh, y- y'all wanted to further discuss from earlier callers. Yep. So. So we'll just jump in here and um, uh, start working on that last uh, question that came through. The question was about uh, celebrating holidays, um, uh, and we ma- he mentioned in particular Easter and uh, Christmas. And I started on the uh, on Easter. Um, our church, this is the Agape Church, uh, we're in Napa Valley. Um, we don't celebrate Easter um, because Easter is not biblical. Uh, and uh, we, if we are a biblical people wanting to live a biblical faith uh, from the perspective of a um, the God of the Bible then we do our best to follow the Bible. Um, Jesus said this, you have made the word of God of none effect through your traditions, Mark 7. Now, if the if tradition can take away power from the word, because we typically say, well, the word is, a, is the most powerful thing there is. Well, Jesus said your traditions can make the word of none effect. So if traditions can make the Bible of none effect, then we have to analyze what we believe. Are there traditions in our life that we're given more credence to, more weight to, than the Word of God? If the answer is yes, then your job as a follower of Jesus is to jettison your tradition. That might be painful. Hey, it was painful for me. I mean, there was a, I mean how many times has my belief set been challenged? But I was glad I allowed myself to be challenged because when I was challenged and accepted God's Word, I grew as a believer. And when you take these two things, we're talking about Easter in particular here, uh, and the biblical feast, the God feast, the feast of the Lord, not the feast of the Jews, mm. the feast of the Lord, Passover, Pesach in Hebrew, uh, there is no, there is no, there is no um, challenge here. Easter has to go. Why? Number one, it's not biblical. It's man-made. And how is it man-made? We've discussed this before. But it was given to us in the 300s by a man named Constantine. Constantine supposedly becomes the first Christian emperor. That's debatable. But uh, one thing he wanted to do was he wanted to consolidate his empire, and the best way to do that was through uh, religion. And so what he did was he took one of the dominant goddesses of uh, the Babylonian area, and he created a feast after her. And her name was Ishtar. Well, she already had a feast going on. Her symbol was, I said, as I said before, the egg. Um, the story goes like this. This massive egg falls out of the sky, hits the bank of the Euphrates River, and, and breaks open. And this multi-breasted fertility goddess jumps out and introduces herself to these people who saw her as Ishtar. And she said she was a goddess. They didn't believe she was a goddess. And she said, let me prove to you that I am. And there was a bird. I'm sorry, there was a rabbit uh, hopping, no, there was a bird hopping along the bank, and she pointed at the rab- the bird and turned the bird into a rabbit that continued to lay eggs like a bird. And there's where we get our chicks uh, <laughs> from on, on Easter, and that's also where we get the fact that a rabbit now can lay an egg. Uh, and uh, you ever thought about this? We have an, a rabbit named Peter, that means he's a boy, laying eggs that only females could do. We have a gender-confused rabbit as the main symbol of the greatest Christian event in human history, which is, of course, you know, most people don't think about this. Every major thing that has happened in our faith has happened on a Jewish feast day. Jesus died at Passover. He was buried at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruit, sent the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. Everything that's major in our faith has happened on a Jewish feast day. Why? Because God set up a calendar, and he runs his his kingdom on this calendar that he set up. And the next feast that comes that has not been fulfilled is called the Feast of Trumpets. I wonder what may ha- might be happening on that know, particular. It just happens to come up this week. And, yeah, uh, that's interesting. It might be why so much of the world will be caught off guard when those trumpets <laughs> start blowing because they're not looking for it. Quickly, I'll run th- th- finish this story. These guys believe, oh, she must be a goddess. She turned a, um, a bird into a rabbit that still lays eggs. They, 
So as they were rejoicing and worshiping her about that time, a wild boar comes running through the area. I guess that's what happened in ancient Babylon. (laughs) She hopped on the back of this wild boar that she rode into town. They followed her in there. They slaughtered the wild boar on an altar to worship her, and that's why you eat ham at Easter. Yeah. The Jews are eating lamb. Christians are eating ham. Why? Because that's how you worship the goddess, uh, the fertility goddess. And uh, quickly, uh, then, long story short, then they basically uh, created this feast of her. They impregnate virgins on the on the summer solstice, and then they slaughter their babies th- uh, after they've been born, and they dip the eggs in the blood of the babies. And that's why you dye eggs at Easter time. Thoroughly pagan, unchristian, unbiblical, unscriptural, and has no place in the house of God. What has the, what do we do have for us in the house of God? It is the feast of Passover, the feast of the Lord that Jesus Himself said, "I have." desired with desire mm. to celebrate this Passover with you. And we I will not celebrate this again until we do this together in my Father's kingdom. So what do we do? What's going to happen in the kingdom is what we do at our church, and that is we do the, the Feast of Passover Amen. as long as as well as the rest of the Feast of the Lord as well. Amen. So I'm going to jump on over to Steve. <laughs> well, the, the, the Feast of the Lord are rehearsals. And when you just go through what Pastor Scott laid out, which was – you know, he came, um, died as the lamb on Passover, rose on first fruits uh, during the week of unleavened bread, and then sent us the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Those They were rehearsing for these events. And there's other things that are happening in the fall, which just so happened to start this Sunday night and, and this Monday, which is known as uh, Rosh Hashanah, is a traditional Jewish name for Jewish New Year, but it's actually called Yom Teruah in Hebrew, which is the day of trumpeting. Uh, and if you follow this theme and then you go into the book of Revelation around chapters 18, 19, and 20, you see the theme of this feast that's coming up, mm-hmm. uh, which is Rosh Hashanah or Yom Tov, then rolls into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And you see this period of time where there's a warning coming of trumpets blowing to let you know that, that atonement and or judgment, depending on what side you fall on, is coming. And during that period of time, books are opened, and your works are judged, and whether or not you're to be found in what's to be found of you written in these books. You lay out this tradition according to what Revelation records for us, we see exactly what's going to happen when the Lord is coming back. And so when we remove the biblical mandate to what we're to follow and insert tradition, we find something out about the word tradition here that's very interesting. And when you take a tradition, it, it says that you take it in your hands. This is, the, this is the, the definition of the word tradition. But it comes from the word to meaning to be someone took by the hand. So when it says that they took Jesus and that's what it means is that he took he was taken in the hands. And if you take a tradition, you take something that God gave you and it's meant to be something wonderful that he placed in your hands to manage, but then you turn it into a tradition or you alter it to fit your own tradition because that makes you feel good about your faith, then that which was supposed to be something pleasant that was laid in your hand now becomes bondage and you've been taken by that which was meant to be good has now put you in bondage. And that's what our traditions do when we follow these non-biblical things that have made their way into our faith, they actually put us in more bondage than we realized and not not the freedom of what we were originally given. So we think it's very important to follow what God laid out, not what the tradition of men laid out. And I'll just go ahead and say this, that all the feasts of the Lord are about Jesus. Yeah. Why Why would you not want to know more about Jesus? And if each feast tells his story, then why would any believer not want to know more about his story? The reason why everything in our faith has happened on a, on a feast of the Lord is because every one of these things is about Jesus. Amen. And uh, I'm just going to quickly tell this one thing here before going about Passover really quickly. 
where, as I said before, you, I told you a little bit about the story of, uh, of Easter. But let me just tell you this quick thing about, about Passover. At the Passover meal, which we celebrate every year, the Passover meal at the beginning of it, the leader, which is usually myself, picks up a, a white bag. This white bag is made out of one material. It has three parts. You open it up, and there's three compartments on the inside. Does anybody know one and three? I think we all do. Inside each one is a piece of bread. You pull the middle piece out. The bread is unleavened. It's pierced. It's striped. Anybody know anybody that was pierced for us or striped for us? Came out of the middle. One of the three comes out. You take it. You break it in half. Anybody know anybody that was broken for us? You put half of it back in the bag. goes back into the three in one. You take the other piece that's broken, pierced, striped. You wrap it in a white linen cloth, and then you bury it. Hello? <laughs> At the end of the meal, the father calls for resurrection, People, the children typically run around, they find the bread, they raise it up, they bring the bread back to the leader, and before the leader takes the bread, he can't just take it, he has to buy it, and he has to pay silver for it. So a piece of bread that's striped, pierced, broken, wrapped, buried, raised, paid silver for, three in one, it's the gospel in a Amen. bag, which we have rejected for the sake of chasing a rabbit and eggs and chicks around. We have denied ourselves the power of the word of God because our tradition is now stronger, and we'd rather keep our tradition than keep the word of God. It really comes down to just that. Right. Are we going to follow the word as believers, or are we going to trade holy? For this profane. I wonder if that answered Tony's question. I hope it did. <laughs> I think. I hope it did. That was a fascinating uh, illustration and uh, a little part of uh, his biblical history that I didn't know. Mm. The uh, but I think uh, I don't know how much time we got before the break. But uh, uh, we'll go to the break right now. Okay, guys, we're back. We're here with the Bible guys, Steve and Scott, whose last names I have lost in my notes. There we go. <laughs> Scott Stewart and Steve Hess at 501-823-0965, and they're going to answer an email question, I think, and clear up some other things. Before they do that, real quickly, before I forget, uh, I will be speaking, uh, and this is State Central Alan Clark, by the way, uh, filling in for Dave today. I will be speaking at the Garland County Republican Committee Thursday night. Uh, that'll be at First Nazarene Church in Hot Springs. Uh, I will be speaking at the Hot Springs Women of Prayer Monday morning at 9, also at First Nazarene, and at the Garland County Republican Women Monday at 1. And last but not least, I will be speaking at the Celebration Picnic for Constitution Day here in Little Rock at MacArthur Park. That will be from 12 to 4. I think the speakers will be early uh, sometime afternoon. There will be some other great speakers can't say that I'm great, but there will be some other great speakers there, and we'll be talking about the Constitution. And uh, I know that the Garland County Tea Party and the Hot Springs Village Tea Party and some other groups are putting that on, and we'll get back to the Bible, guys. Steve? All right. Um, We're going to just uh, uh, quickly mention, uh, I think it was Melba who brought this up, so we're going to kind of just clean up the situation uh, for you, Melba. Um, We're relating back to the story that you talked about, uh, and um, I'm just going to hit – I'm going to – just identify the people that were taking up the tax, and then uh, Steve can pick up the idea of the actual temple tax itself. Um, whenever during this time, uh, during the Second Temple period, it was the Sadducees who actually were running the show. Um, they functioned uh, primarily as the priests and the high priest, and they were running everything. Uh, and if you recall, the Sadducees had a, a belief set, a, a doctrinal statement, basically, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in um, angels, supernatural. They were very, uh, very carnal uh, people. 
uh, but Jesus makes this. And so what I'm saying to that is that they were the ones who were levying these taxes as the Sadducees. They were levying taxes for the uh, temple purposes. They were obviously not managing well the tithes and offerings. They levied a certain uh, tax against uh, the people. Jesus says that lest we offend them, let's go ahead and give this money. Uh, sometimes uh, we look up to see how Jesus, Jesus never lost focus of his mission. His mission was to bring the gospel uh, to the hearts of all men. And uh, the Bible tells us that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. So in, in order to keep these Sadducees from, from uh, being so offended they couldn't hear the message of Messiah, he allowed himself, as well as Peter, to pay this temple tax to keep himself from offending the Sadducees so they would continue to listen to his, uh, to listen to his message. Um, but beyond that, the actual temple tax itself, there was a tax that the Bible talked about, um, but it was a different uh, type of thing. I'm going to pass it over to Steve. Yeah, uh, for the there's a mention up. of the half she- shekel, and there's actually some excitement about this today because there's even – they've got the new Israeli shekel, and I believe they actually created the half shekel oh, they really? for this very reason. Um, and there's a mention of it here in the book of Exodus chapter 30, but it's actually dealing with the context of when you take a census. Um and there was some offerings, and there was um, that type of tax that was given, but this one here I, I think was exactly what Pastor Scott was talking about, that it was some far and above just so they could kind of um, keep the coffers full for their own personal gain, not not the biblical mandate. And I think we can see that's not the biblical mandate because he, Jesus even asked Peter a question. He says, who are they taking this tax from? And he says, from the strangers. I think the the half shekel uh, tax have been primarily leveled against the uh, Jew, not Correct. against, but levied among, um, with the Jewish people, so they would be able to support their own temple. So they're out there trying to get tax, which means uh, Jesus and Peter were actually exempt from it because they weren't strangers, um, but they were being asked to pay something that they didn't have to pay anyway. So he said, "Well, let's keep from, unless we offend them, let's just go ahead and give it anyway." Because he asked Peter, he says, "Well, who's ta- who received? Who are they taking this from?" He says strangers, then he says, well, aren't the sons then free? Uh, I think it's good. I think I like the fact that Jesus had an actual – he made a statement about taxes, right, about, right. The, about the fairness of the right. of the tax. But he was able to pay it to keep uh, to keep them uh, open to hearing what he had to say. So um, hopefully that answers your question, Melba. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, we can kind of uh, move on. We did have an email question that uh, came through. Um, this is from uh, Susan. And she's asking the question here. She asks, uh, what did spikenard oil do? She goes on to say, I know the Bible says that it was a very precious oil and expensive. And the woman came and poured this on Jesus uh, right before he was crucified. And Jesus said that uh, she had uh, wrought a good thing upon him. Um, the woman was a sinner, yet Jesus had, uh, said that she had done a good uh, a good work. So the question is, uh, what did the spikenard oil um, do? Um, the oil in it in itself, as far as I'm not sure exactly the question, if it's what did it do in the sense of it, did it have a medicinal purpose or was it, um, something, uh, other than that, I'm not sure, uh, or what did it do to Jesus, but we can answer the question. The spikenard oil was truly a very expensive oil. As a matter of fact, Judas actually says we could have sold it for 300, I think 300 denarii. This was an extremely, uh, valuable, uh, perfume. This is, this Spikenard oil is used in the Song of Solomon three different times. Um, there are a couple of different theories about what the spikenard oil was. Uh, one is they saw this as her dowry. Um, if you recall back in biblical times, whenever uh, a man would marry a woman, uh, the man, uh, she would come with a dowry. She would come with, uh, with some money, with some goods. 
uh, and they were typically valuable goods that would help get the marriage started off. And uh, and so some people see that this was her dowry. She would come into the marriage with this um, oil. Some people see that it was a particular oil made for a bride, and she would wear it on her on her honeymoon night uh, with her her groom to cause him to take a have for to stand out uh, to him. And then um, uh, lastly, they see this as um, something that she um, merely had herself, and she wanted to that this was a a type of oil. Correct me here if I'm wrong. A type of oil that was used for anointing consecrated things for dedication and for worship. And she had this oil and she wanted to dedicate and worship the Lord and she poured it upon him mm-hmm. uh, instead of pouring it uh, on the altar or something of that nature. She poured it upon him almost prophetically stating that he was my altar, he was my dedication, my worship. And also um, they would use this presumably for burial as well. So it's almost prophetic foretelling of yeah. his crucifixion. Yep, and there's also I think two other pictures that we can draw from this. One is um, – uh, this actually reaches back to I think to last week when we were talking about uh, Melchizedek is one of the things that that um, how Aaron was consecrated is that they were anointed and oil was poured upon the priest. So you could draw whether this was the direct reason you can draw a secondary meaning for sure that she was anointing him, uh, but also the word Messiah means an anointed one. Mm-hmm. So you could see many pictures being played out there apart from the specifics of um, the spikenard, but the act itself. So she's anointing the anointed one, the Mashiach, and also the, the high priest, if you will, um, was being anointed at that time as well. So there's a couple other pictures you can draw from that. Yeah. And it's called, uh, they called it spikenard, if I'm not mistaken, because the, the herb itself had little hair hairs on it, but it actually had like little spikes on it. So they called it spikenard because of that. But it was extremely rare and extremely uh, valuable. This is probably the most valuable thing that she had in her life and um and so i think it shows how we all should make sure that we take those things that are valuable to ourselves and offer them Amen. to the lord as a, an act of uh, worship to him we only have a couple minutes uh, left can i take one more thing uh, okay uh this was uh last week um we were dealing with uh, giving uh tithes and offerings and so forth and there were several questions about the uh about the giving uh and i wanted to just to deal with one thing we didn't uh, leave uh cleared up I think it was. Uh, I think Russ asked the question. I think one also somebody called in and asked about using the tithe um, for um, or not. What happened if you use the tithe for something you shouldn't have used it for? Um, and I wanted to point out that there's something called the Bible calls redeeming the tithe. Um, you are allowed to redeem your tithe if you are. In other words, if something catastrophic was happening and you had to have money. Um, God allowed you to redeem your tithe. In other words, he allowed you to use your tithe for something else, but only temporarily. You had to return it. And the reason why you had to return the tithe is because it didn't belong to you. Uh, the Bible on several occasions says the tithe is the Lord's. So it doesn't belong to you. So you don't, you cannot vicariously use it however you wish because it doesn't belong to you. That's why uh, Malachi says, will a man rob God? Because you're a thief if you take what doesn't belong to you. So the tithe, although you could use it for other things, you had to return it, but when you returned it, the Lord said you had to add 20% to it. So he allowed you to use it, but it was coming back with 20% interest on it. So if it was a, if it was, um, you know, you know, if it was $10 that was your tithe, then when you gave it back to the Lord after your period of use for it, you would return and you would give $12 unto the Lord. But that's called redeeming the tithe. And I also think it's also can be called grace that even though God has a rule, a law in place that you should give to him, he allows space mm. for you to have grace to do things because he understands uh, the situations. Much like when the children of Israel, uh, some of the men when God said that you're going to celebrate the Passover, you're going to celebrate on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, 
um, they came, some men came to, to Moses and said, but we can't because we're unclean. We did this, we did that. What should we do? And the Lord, he petitioned the Lord, and the Lord said, you know what? You can do it next month. That's right. <laughs> he said, do it a month later. So the idea that the, the law is hard and strict and unflexible is a very much a Greek idea. There's a lot of flexibility because you have a God who doesn't change, and he's loving and compassionate. And how important the Passover was to him that he gave them uh, that extra day in order to celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, guys, uh, Scott and Steve, it was great to spend time with you today. Same with you, man. Uh, Enjoy meeting you. Uh, enjoyed being here with you. I appreciate Dave Ellswick having the uh, confidence in me to uh, ask me to host today. Uh, it was a great surprise to me. Uh, and uh, to uh, appreciate Adi Alumba. Uh, I said it wrong this time. Adi Alumba, uh, who was on uh, from 2 to 3 talking about uh, reading. Uh, and does a great job in uh, making sure kids can read across the state. Uh, Joe Churchwell and David Sterling, and uh, appreciate uh, the staff here that has kept me between the ditches today. <laughs> and so uh, we are about to run out of time, and we're done. <laughs> Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.